0: So the common refrain recently in our uh, Making the Argument community chat has been, Nick, Christian, why so gloomy? They never blame Queen of the Bees. They always love Queen of the Bees. They always love the good Hamilton. But apparently, Christian and myself have been too gloomy about the potential prospects of our country, our I, civilization. And so what we're going to do now. I think they they said doom. 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 They said uh, doom was mentioned several times. And so what we're going to do today is we is we talk about fighting against the the present cultural insanity that we're all experiencing is we're going to talk about the fun ways to do it. This is going to be this, I promise, I promise it's going to be more lighthearted as we talk about the various things that kind of uh, unite us with respect to what we believe and what we would like to see in the culture we'd like to preserve. And most importantly, how do we do that on a practical level, both individually, locally, regionally, uh, nationally, and even internationally. That's one of the things I love the most about our community chat is we have people not just from all over the country but from all over the world. And so today, that's what we're going to spend our time talking about. Not doom and gloom. We're going we're gonna to have to rehash a little bit of it. But we're going to focus on the positive. So I, I promise, um, you know, that's what we're going to do today. I think you're going to enjoy it. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument Powered by Good
1: Ranchers. We have just surpassed over 400 people in our community chat. If you would like to join and help us drive the direction of our show, hope you'll go to the link in the description, sign up. We'd love to get to know you there, and let's get right into the show.
0: Okay, as always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably okay guy. With us, as always, my beautiful bride, Tina Queen of the Bees.
2: Hello, everyone, and I also want to say happy birthday to Daffy D. Duck.
0: Oh, wow, Daffy? It's, it's
2: Daffy's birthday.
0: Happy birthday, Daffy. Yeah. Happy and, birthday.
2: And for your birthday, apparently I get to do next uh, Tuesday's episode. Oh, we're
0: going to get into that. I was going to reveal that we'll just yet. We'll see how yet. all that goes. Yeah, yeah. Then, of course, we have our resident historian and political prognosticator, still in search of a more quippier nickname, so that when people see him at the store, they can refer to him as it. Christian Hines.
3: Hey, this is, I'm not looking forward to this because there's no doom at <laughs> all.
0: <laughs> and then, of course, we have Nicholas Hamilton, our producer of producers, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I, I'm glad I'm not the one that gets
1: called the Doomer.
0: No, no. We Well, I'll tell you what. We, we went to our, again, we went to our community chat and we talked a little bit about what today's episode was going to be like. We wanted to talk about some of the practical things that we could do because that's been something a lot of people have been asking for, but... We also had to make a big decision on what Tuesday's episode was going to be. because this I This w- coming Tuesday's. This coming Tuesday. This coming Tuesday's episode was going to be because I will be traveling. I will not be here. And so we went out to that community chat and we offered some ideas. And like almost everybody came right back with, yes, give Queen of the Bees her own episode. Totally just no filters. And then
2: I threatened to tell all episode and tell you guys <laughs> all the funny things there are to know about
0: Nick. The, why would she spend she spent that whole time mocking me?
2: <laughs> I wouldn't all mock right. you. I'm just gonna share everybody the side they don't always see.
0: Uh oh. Well, 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 honey, that's <laughs> that side's only for you. Well baby. not that
2: side.
0: <laughs> all right. So let's let's go ahead and do a little bit of recap of what we're talking about. I promise this is the only part that'll seem a little bit doomy, all right? We have discussed over several episodes as we've talked about everything from the battle for the male mind, the female mind, the battle for our kids' minds, we've talked about, you know, problems with the way that governments and central banks, not only in the United States, but all over the world, have mismanaged both fiscal and monetary policy. And we've essentially come to the conclusion that look, we don't know when, we don't know how big, but there's gonna be some pain going forward with respect to the way that the current system is set up. And one of the things that we were talking about yesterday that kind of struck us as interesting is that if you're if you're like 60 or above, of, you're kind of looking at the world and it just feels like this, this is just a complete departure from what you grew up with. If you're my age, right? Like if in your forties, your fifties, you're old enough to remember what the world was like before the internet. Like I remember what it was like to not have a cell phone. I remember what it was like to not just be able to go and Google things. Right? I remember with life before no social media. If you're in your twenties and thirties, you're probably feeling the most betrayed of anyone right now. because why do you say that? And, and here, here's why I say that. It's because if you're in your 40s and 50s, I think a lot of the country was still working the way you more or less expected it to work. There was some disruptions like social media, but yeah. you were actually in a pretty good position to be able to leverage some of that and, and have it be something that could add to your success, not necessarily mess up your whole childhood and stuff like that. But if you're in your 20s and 30s, you really have spent pretty much all of your life kind of in this this new world, and the way the economy works is different. And inflationary policy has really created a situation where, it, it I would say, it's more difficult for someone in their 20s um, right now to achieve the things that you know we found it relatively you know difficult, but is overall still. It's a challenge, but not
1: impossible. Exactly.
0: And, and I think a lot of people in their 20s and 30s now are feeling like it is just more difficult than it has ever been. And and as Christian has pointed out, it's especially difficult for those people that still played by the rules, right? Work yeah. hard. Don't make stupid decisions. We were, to- we were told that if we played by the rules, it would all work out okay. And yeah, here we are. If you just get a college degree, you'll make six figures and everything will be wonderful, right? And, and I think 20s and 30s are really feeling disillusioned. And then there's the teenagers, Where like, this is all they've ever known. They don't even, they don't even have recollections of what the world was like before kind of the madness that they're experiencing right now. And it's, and it's one of those things where people look at that and like, oh my gosh, like my grandkids are going to grow up in a world where of course there's 472 genders. And of course you're a, a bigoted, horrible person by virtue of your white skin color, right? That's the sort of thing they're looking at going, okay, wait, how do we, how do we either slow this bus down, turn it around or, you know, exit clown world? And that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. Right? Because here's the thing I want to I want to kind of first dive into. And that is, what do we want? We want kind of an alternative to the current madness. And there's two general approaches that you can take to that, right? You can either kind of try to get back into the institutions, whether it's higher education, whether it's the mainstream media, whether it's Hollywood, um, politics. You can try to get back into these things and really compete within those major institutions, right? Whether it's Warner Brothers or Disney or CNN or MSNBC um, or, you know, Penn State or, you know, Virginia Tech, whatever you can, you can really try to do it that way. Um, Or you can set up competitive um, institutions. So you're still fighting within that same arena, but instead of trying to fight within something that's already established, you're setting up something that is competitive now, let me give an example of what I mean here. This show right now, like one of the things, is as, as much frustration as we sometimes show with social media. YouTube and social media has allowed people like us in an environment um, far more capability to compete with what you might call mainstream sources of news and entertainment in a way that wasn't previously available. Right? If if you if you took over a, a major studio or if you took over a major news network, that was it, baby right? It's what hope would someone like me ever have of being able to go into MSNBC and be like, you know what? No, I'm going to work my way through the ranks and I'm going to get to a position of influence and we're going to change this. They wouldn't let you make it there. They wouldn't even let you make it there. So is it worth trying to fight, infiltrate, work up that you spend a lifetime hoping that one day you'll get to a point where the gatekeepers won't be looking and you can, you can change the narrative within that
1: Institution and the likelihood of being
0: compromised on the way up is very high. Exactly, but so my answer would be no. Like MSNBC, MSNBC is an institution or an organization. I'm not trying to compete for. I'm trying to compete against it for the larger institution, which is media. But finding alternatives outside of those, you know, the gatekeepers is what's so important.
1: So, Nick, what do you say to the person that maybe they're a public school teacher or they're someone who does work in local media and they really love the institution that has given them so much over all these years? What would you say to that person?
0: So this is the part where I think it gets a little bit interesting and there's a little bit of choose your own adventure here. So for instance, when I look, when I look at the current state of the public school system, I am very frustrated. However, I still try to fight as a legislator in order to try to, because I don't think that's like going away tomorrow. I don't think we're going to have some sort of drastic departure. And I, and I'm still aware that probably the vast majority of kids are still going to get their education through that. So I'm an, I'm going to fight to try to give those kids the best education possible, to try to create as much freedom within that education system as possible. I would love for something where dollars follow students instead of just going to where the the bureaucrats and the politicians direct those dollars to go to. So there are areas where, let's just say within the institution of politics, where we can still be competitive. We can still win elections. We can still pass legislation. We can still be competitive. I think that's a worthwhile organization to be able to, to fight within. And so that gives you the ability to maybe influence those other things. Now, somebody watching who knows me is going to say, "Yeah, but Nick, you homeschooled your kids." Yes, I did. And I'm telling you right now that if you're if you're someone looking at this from a teacher's perspective or maybe an elected official's perspective and you're thinking, "How can I improve this situation to to create a system where maybe we have, you know, assistance for people that need education, but maybe the government isn't the one running it." You know, it's, it, that's always been a fascinating problem to me. Is when you look at public education, it's not it's not that we're saying that um, it, one of the biggest things that we're fighting is this idea that the government is going to run education. And and it's fascinating when people look back and like, well, you can't use public dollars on on private institutions. I'm like, oh, you mean like with defense contracting and with Medicaid and with Medicare and with road construction and with per diem and with like when politicians travel and they use their their taxpayer dollars. Do, do they only stay in government hotels and eat in government restaurants or do they go in the private? No. So much of the spending that the government does is actually public dollars being spent within the private sector to provide goods and services. right? We, we don't have the you know, federal department of weapons munition. We, we have private sector companies that do that. And there's no reason why we, even with hospitals, right? We, most of our hospitals are still private sector hospitals. They might be heavily regulated by the government, but they're still private sector hospitals. We could do something similar with an education. So I would say that to, to answer your question, what you should look at with institutions is what are, the, what are the institutions that we believe are really worth fighting for, maybe within some of the more traditional means, and what are the organizations within those large, those broader categories? So again, if I'm if I'm recommending to someone on where to send their kids for um, their their education, I'm going to recommend alternatives to the public school right now because I don't have a great deal of faith in the way that government is managing that institution. Now, maybe you're someone that believes that that can change over the next five, six, seven, eight years, okay? But I would say at that point you're kind of gambling pretty heavily. If if you share my concern, you might be gambling pretty heavily with what sort of quali- what sort of education your child's going to get. And so that's what we look at, right? Two things. What can we what can we effectively compete within the system as it currently exists and what do we need to set up alternatives for? And education is one where I think there's a lot of opportunities for alternatives to the way that the, the government is running the current system. But and 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 here's here's the larger cultural point I want to make here. If you've ever read um, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, And this is, this is critical to understand because so much of the conversation within conservative circles is how do we take back and how do we do this? And how do we, one of the things that fascinated Alexis de Tocqueville about early America, I think it was the 1830s when, when he was, he was traveling throughout the United States. One of the things that really fascinated him was, was not just our, our, our system of government at the state level or at the federal level. It wasn't just our constitution. It was when he would go into rural areas. And there would be a problem confronting this small town and it didn't even occur to them to talk to their state representative or their congressman or woman didn't even occur to them. Well, congressman at that time, because it was like, well, no, this is, this is a local issue. We're going to fix it. And then that's what they do and if there was something that required you know an, an extended approach well then they might they might form a permanent or a semi-permanent organization if it was something that was just a a one-off problem hey we got to build this bridge or we got to they had a mechanism for doing that and it, and it wasn't so dependent upon you know ever increasing higher levels of of permanent government bureaucracy to get it done and that fascinated him because it was such a departure from what he witnessed in Europe and one of the things, as we talk about everything else today, one of the things I think we need to focus on is, once again, you know, embracing that part of American culture which doesn't wait around for the government to make the necessary change. Right? We can do it. We don't got to ask permission. And, and I think that's, that's an important part of what we're trying to achieve here is how do we foster the sort of communities where when we do have these sorts of questions, like how do I educate my kid? How do I get access to healthcare? How do I, how do I help someone in need? How would I get help if I'm the person in need? How do I get you know food? How do I learn certain skills or trades that I can do, that I, that I can engage in commerce with other like-minded people? Stop waiting for the government to get their crap together. <laughs> They're not good at getting their crap together because they benefit from their crap not being together. But that doesn't mean we can't get our crap together. Yeah. Right. So that's what we need to look at. Right. Is we, what, what do we want? We want an, an alternative to madness. We need to start looking at what are the institutions that we fight within and what are the things that we come up with competitive organizations? So at what point do we
1: completely pull out of an organization or or a business that we're working in. Because here's, here's what I've been thinking about as you've been talking, um, you know, social media. You know, I think there are a lot of conservatives that say, oh, well, we just need to be on Rumble or we just need to be on this platform. But I've always held the position that if we leave YouTube or um, stop using the, you know, meta or whatever it is altogether, we are absolving ourselves from an opportunity to do battle on the largest battlefield online. Yeah. What do you think about that?
0: No, I, I agree. I, I think it, when, whenever you're on an area where you can effectively compete. Um, so like YouTube, this is a platform that is that is not very friendly to our way right. of thinking, right? Like um, X is obviously a lot more friendly than it's ever been before. Rumble is very friendly. Truth Social might be more friendly. I, I'm very impressed that you just called it X. Yeah.
2: <laughs> can, but, can I bring up one little point here? Yeah. That works if you're an adult in that sphere and you're doing the battle yourself as an adult in that sphere. You're going to buck the system. You're going to share um, differing views, obviously, media-wise. However, the the area where I don't think that actually works is, is when parents are like, hey, I'm going to send my kid to the public school to make the public school better. Yep. And we'll send our kids out on mission to the public school. Um, I had one parent one time... Um, tell me that uh, she sends her kid to this failing school um, because she and she's a teacher at the school. And she could have sent her kids, you know, stayed in the district where her kids live and sent them there, but instead she had them come to the school where she teaches because she wants to help boost the scores for the school using her kids. And I just thought that was a little I mean, I, I get, I get, the sentiment like she wanted to help the school, but I'm not sacrificing my kid, uh, to boost to cook the books for a well, school.
0: I, I think she also wanted her, her kids where she was at, and I mean, she I, wanted them, I, I them where she was that. at, but
2: they weren't in her class or anything yeah. like that. But, uh, but I did think it was odd because I, I was thinking basically you want to cook the books for the school oh, yeah. and you're not raising anybody else's test score. You're just bringing in your kids to help their score, help those kids. And then what else is happening in the process? You're not the one teaching your kid there.
0: Well, I, th- I think so. I think there's two things to answer your question, Hamilton. I, th- I think you, you break down, you, you look at the category that we're talking about, right? Media, arts and entertainment, food supply, entrepreneurship, you know, business at large, healthcare, whatever it is, right? You look at it, you look within the organizations within those areas, and you ask yourself, which one of these will at least allow me to be able to compete and influence? And which ones will not? Like, I I am not convinced. Now, again, this is also something where free people get to make up their own mind on where they think they can effectively compete. I know people that are very mad at me that we post things on YouTube because don't you know that YouTube does... Yeah, but there's a massive audience on YouTube. We have the ability to connect with people, make an argument to people, potentially convince people. I'm not going to pass that up because I don't like the I don't agree with the owners of the platform. So that's the question you have to do. You have to do a cost-benefit analysis. What does it cost me to operate within this system, within this organization, with, with on this platform? And and what are the benefits? What do I gain from it? And if and if the benefits outweigh the cost for for that overall objective, well then, I, I think it's worth competing in, um, but but people still have to make their own decisions on on you know again what, what they want to value. Uh, Wilhelm said homeschooling is not the end all be all, Nick, but neither is public schooling. Wilhelm, what I what I'd say on this is wh- what I want is for people to have options, and I'm very very leery of the sort of options which you're forced to take because the government first of all, taxes you for something, then it insists on administrating something for you, and then it insists that you go to the thing that they've taxed you for and are administrating unless you can afford, uh, afford an alternative. And that's the current public school system. The, the way I like to word it is, it's not that everything within the public school system is, system is nefarious or that all the people, like, I'm not making that claim. But the public school system was not created for your child, it was created for the mass production of education. And again, that's not even nefarious. It, it had to be in order to, you know, to handle the volume that it that it has And so what people should do is they should look at their own skill sets. They should look at their own desires. They should look at their own worldview and they want to raise their kids. And then they should make the best decisions that they think is going to facilitate a quality education for their kid. And for some people to be homeschooling, for some people to be private schooling, for some people it might be a combination. Some people might be left with the public school. And then the question is, is how do they effectively interact with it to get the best result? So I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying you got to do it the way I did it, but I do want to be honest with people about why we chose to, do it the way we did.
2: There's another question from uh, Melissa Marie. If we change public ed to a publicly subsidized, privately owned uh, industry, how do we avoid the negative aspects of that dynamic um, that happen in, uh, in other industries, poor quality, high cost favoritism? I would say you already have poor, poor quality, high cost and favoritism in uh, the public education sphere. They're just using your tax dollars to do it. You're not paying out of pocket. Yeah. You're not physically writing the check. The government's doing it for you, but you're paying a lot of taxes for it. So it's 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 extremely unresponsive, unreliable. Like the public education system has uh, really, really, I mean, you, you can't argue that it's a, a good, clean, positive system. It's really, really broken. So um, I always feel like the private sector always, the private sector is the antidote to the things you mentioned, um, poor quality, high cost favoritism. But, but I will say- I feel like- I feel like um, prices come down, quality comes up when you can innovate, and the only way to innovate is is not to do it by committee yeah. and by bureaucracy.
0: I, I do think Melissa makes a very good point about what happens though. When, whenever you have public financing, you know have this public private relationship, and and there's it is problematic. It is, it is definitely problematic. The thing that I would suggest, though, is that if the alternative that we seek is just, all right, hey, no more government interference within education. If that's your desired outcome, I, I don't think you get there from here. Um, I, I think that either way, whether you're someone that believes the government should play some role, whether you're someone that believes the government should play no role, I, I think... What we could all theoretically agree on is that one, there should be a space where if you decide to completely separate yourself from the system, either through private education or homeschooling, you should be permitted to do that without having to be involved or any government rules or regulations following you. Uh, for the people that are still going to stay somewhat involved, I would much prefer a system where dollars follow the student as opposed to politicians just kind of, you know, directing them. And so that's what we're talking about. I, I in no way mean to imply that dollars following students is the ideal that's going to solve all the problems. It's not. I just think it's a vast improvement of what, of what we currently have.
3: There's a question from Catachrome that I want to get to because I think that it in some ways will tee up the heart of what we want to talk about in today's episode they Go ask, um, is it wise to hope for a change in the system, or should we just be stepping up and doing this ourselves, whether there is a system or not? No one will save you if you won't save yourself. Uh, what ahead. I what I want to uh, what what I think that that what we're trying to achieve here, and Nick, you and I had a conversation about this last night, actually. Um, and I, I think it was actually a very productive conversation. Yeah. We were getting into um, a, a discussion about when I said that the left had constructed a coalition of losers or a top bottom coalition <laughs> where, you know, there's some people are the elites in the left. You know, yeah. they're the people in Palo Alto that have the multimillion dollar homes and, and are NIMBYs and don't, you know, want to kind of run the show with an altruistic type of despotism. And then there's everybody else. Right. Like California is the quintessential example of a 21st century feudal state. Um, the the reason that I used that term, the whole coalition of losers, is because what I'm trying to get across, and I know that was very unpopular with some <laughs> people, the reason that I use that term though is because what I'm trying to get across is the way that you win. We we've talked at many episodes about this phenomenon of the left controlling all of our cultural, societal, political, economic institutions. Yeah, right. People have used different terms for this. Andrew Tate called it the Matrix. Um, what I felt his called it calls it the Leviathan. A few other people called it the Leviathan the neo reactionary people called it the cathedral point is, is that it's the same thing. People have just come up with different terms to describe the same thing, just the complete dominance of our cultural and political and economic institutions by the left. What I'm trying to get across is we need to make it, we need to make it cool (laughs) to revolt against those institutions and associate them with being lame. (laughs) And, and, And so that's why I use that term. So my answer to catachrome is, We shouldn't be trying. The problem with conservatism for the last, gosh, like 50 years in this country has been we keep trying to change the system
0: rather than construct a parallel system. Well, okay, so I I think, so let's talk about that. Um, Because here's the question we we talk about this, and that may sound easy when we say, like, okay, we're we're going to set up a private school as opposed to a public school. But I, I think when people look at the, the institutions as a whole and the culture as a whole, it just seems overwhelming. And so the real question is, is like, okay, and instead of trying to – you know, it was, it was funny. We were talking about the, the book of Nehemiah and the Bible, right? And when they, when they, they came back, Jerusalem is destroyed. They're trying to rebuild the wall. Now you could sit there and have a committee and a, and a board and look at everything and be like, all right, how are we going to build this miles long wall? Or you could say, all right, dude, here's your house. Now look at the portion right in front of you. That's that you're responsible for that part of the wall. Right? And so here's what I want to do. I let's lay out what I would say are kind of like three, three categories. Um, to create what we're talking about. I, I think you need, I think you need a, a purpose or, or a mission. Um, I think you need capabilities and then you need community because you're, you're always going to be able to, or you should be able to accomplish a lot more as part of a community than just as, just as an individual. So if the pur- if the first, if we're trying to develop that sort of community, the first thing I think is, is purpose and like-minded people. And for me, that's, that's shared values and shared mission. So Shared values, I would say, are things like, look, you don't, you don't got to agree with me. We don't got to have all the same preferences. But I, I think as, as I look at most of the people that are watching our show and look at, we all agree that there's such a thing as objective truth, mm-hmm. right? We all agree that there's such a thing as objective morality. Um, now, some people might look for different sources in that, but we agree that there are certain things that are inherently evil and certain things that are inherently good. The other thing I think we're, we're big on is liberty plus responsibility. I, I, I remember talking to, um, a group that was, it was a really interesting mixture. We had some people that were very hardcore libertarian. We had some people that were very, very hardcore, like left wing and the, the topic of, uh, you know, drugs and marijuana and things like that were coming up. And I said, how many people here don't think the government has any business telling you what to put in your body? Like, yeah, woo. I'm like, all right. And how many people here think the government should pay for your health care? Yeah. Woo. I'm like, wait a second. Stop. You don't get to tell me one second, I want to do whatever I want with my body because it's none of your business. And oh, by the way, if something goes wrong with what I'm doing with my body, I think you should be compelled to pay for it through a governmental and course of tax system. Like that's where the liberty and responsibility comes in, right? Like, I'm sorry, you don't, you can't have genuine liberty without a sense of personal responsibility. You can't because what will end up happening is people that don't have personal responsibility or never developed it or never taught it will leech off the people that are actually producing goods and services and insist and actually feel entitled because after all, isn't it my right? And and for us, it's like, nope, sure isn't. You don't get a right to live off the labor and the work and the effort and the talents and the property of other people. And I think that is a shared value with the sort of community that we look at. Nick, do you know what I do to take responsibility over the food that
1: I eat and help in my health? What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I was not expecting. I know where this
0: is going. <laughs> I buy my steak from Good Ranchers. You know what? That's an excellent point, Hamilton. I never thought of that. You should buy your steak from Good Ranchers. And the reason why you should do that is because if you want to foster the sense of community, the sort of people that share common values and are also absolutely dedicated to providing you with a quality product, right? We're not going to be on here talking about Freedom Water and why not here talking about Freedom Steaks. No, we want a quality product delivered to your door, and that is exactly what Good Ranchers provides. Plus, if you use the promo code that we have in the link, promo code Nick, you will get $30 off, plus free shipping of some of the best steak, poultry, seafood, you will find. And what is better than delivered to your door? Because America, that's where we want it. We've already had a lot of people use that promo code and rave reviews so far. So please, go to the link. Promo code Nick, thirty dollars off, free shipping. Try one of those packages; you're gonna love it. What if I told the audience
3: that that was actually not planned? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was, that was that was Hamilton giving me the cue. So
3: there's um there's a question that I I, I think is actually a really great great question, and it yeah. gets to the whole constructing these these alternative institutions and
0: systems rather than... Well, can I finish the fourth shared value that I think is important real quick? Yeah, sure. The, go the, ahead. the fourth one. So objective truth, objective morality, liberty plus responsibility. Don't talk to me about your freedoms if, if your freedoms means that other people are going to be obligated to provide you stuff. The fourth one is a dedication to logical discourse. What that means is that if you present the evidence, if you present a logical argument, you win the argument. Now, that doesn't mean I necessarily have to agree with you. I might want more time to research. I might want to come back. But the moment you make a really good argument that I can't respond to because the the evidence and your logic is impeccable, you don't get to look at me and then be like, well, of course you'd say that you're a white guy. Of course you'd say that you're cis. Of course you'd say that you're a turf. None of that crap right? If, if, you, if your argument gets crushed, guess what? You can either change your mind or you can go back and try to formulate a better argument, but you don't get to automatically pull up these sort of straw man, ad hominem, red herring, garbage arguments to somehow pretend that reality no longer applies to you as soon as you've been beaten, right? And so those four things, Truth, morality, liberty plus responsibility, and dedication to logical discourse, those are the shared values that I think would form this community. So
3: there's this question from a former Wokey White that says, uh, question, are you trying to indoctrinate children, Christian? Everybody's going to indoctrinate children. The question is whether you're going to be doing it to your own children or you're going to have somebody doing it to your son who thinks that by chopping his genitals off, you can make him a woman. So dang,
2: I, I, it's true. True story. I can't believe Christian said that. You're either. I wasn't the one that said it. Like you're he's, either. He's like taking notes out of my book over here.
3: I, <laughs> like, you're you're either going to raise your children, and I'm speaking as somebody who doesn't have children, but somebody who you know grew up, you know, with parents that that tried to instill some sort of moral framework and you know with me. Look, either either you get to raise your children. Or these insane institutions get to raise your children. And it's not conservative Christians that believe in the Austrian school of economics that are currently in control of these institutions. The Leviathan is not swimming to the right, as they say, right? And so if you're concerned about that, then guess what? If you don't want your children to be Romans, don't send them to Caesar to be raised. and, And then be shocked when they come home as Romans. And so this gets into the whole here the antidote for the this this episode is titled the antidote to uh, to cultural insanity the antidote begins with constructing again i've said this earlier parallel institutions that are not controlled by the left yeah. so the left controls media academia hollywood they control Largely the finance system at this point, they certainly control large swaths of the political system. That's that's one of the only institutions where we have a fair fight because the other ones, they can just literally exclude us, shadow ban us, ban us altogether. You're seeing an example in the UK right now where Nigel Farage is being banned from banking with major banks right yeah. now because of his political views. And what are his political views? They're actually relatively moderate. He simply he he got notoriety for supporting Brexit, which a major last I checked, a majority of the country voted for. Yeah. So w- what I'm trying to get across here is you're never going to be able to take over these institutions. You might win an election. That's the one place where we have somewhat of a fair fight. And if you're on the right, you even know that even on that front. We usually have, you know, we're usually dealt the short end of the stick. But this idea that, oh, we just need to get the right people into position and we can take back the public school system. You're never going to do that. Or we're going to be able to take back the banking system or take back Hollywood or take back academia or the arts. You're never going to take back those institutions. Construct your own institutions. Mm -hmm. And as as long as we keep fighting on their turf, we shouldn't be surprised when we lose. In fact, we should be wanting to construct our own institutions because we want to create a society. We want to create a counterculture that can not just weather the storm that we're currently in, but we've talked about in previous episodes, the direction that we're going with, with, I mean, when you look at the macroeconomic forces that are being assembled against this country right now, when all of that hits at once, what better way can the right step in and fill the void? Than than one in which they've already constructed these institutions that they can then use as a template, as a replacement for the ones that are probably going to, many of which are going to disintegrate when the inevitable debt spiral hits.
0: Well, and and that's the question. Like, so if you got the shared values, the next question is what's the shared mission? You know, what are you saving and what are you saving it for? Well, again, I, I think what most of us are really interested in saving is this idea that. You know, the, the the a general like a general description of culture where people are relatively free to make their own choices with their own property, with their own time, with their own labor and skills, um, in, in order to, you know, build businesses, engage in commerce, you know, have fun, enjoy recreation. Uh, and to be able to do that relatively free from interference from either other people or the government, provided that they're not infringing on the rights of other people to do the same thing. That used to be a, a pretty common threat. Um, now, people can say, oh, you're, you're, you're sitting there, you're dreaming of a time that never really existed. Well, I, I think you have to look at comparatively across space and time and, and world history. We, we certainly have more of that within the United States than, than most places throughout world history. But I, I, again, I think we have this sense that we're losing it, especially when you see things like that, where it's like, oh, I don't like what you said, now I'm going to shut down your ability to bank right? That's okay. That's pretty significant. And that's the sort of thing that you, you prepare against. But again, I, I think the thing that's, when we look at what are we saving, that's the culture we're saving. It's it's just this, it's this ability to be able to work together with other people in voluntary cooperation when, when it, when it suits the people who are engaging in that cooperation's needs and to leave each other alone when it doesn't right. To not automatically say that because I believe X, therefore you should be compelled To participate or fund or celebrate or whatever else. That's, that's kind of that larger, uh, the larger cultural concept with respect to interaction. But I would say again, for me too, I also want to be able to push this idea that look, there, there are, (laughs) there are right ways to do things with respect to um, like generally right ways to do things with respect to how you treat your spouse and how you raise your kids and how you run a business. And, and I want to be able, I want to have the opportunity to be able to advocate for those things, not coerce you. Right. I, I, I got into this at one point on on the house floor where I said, look, coexistence is not a bumper sticker you put on your car. Coexistence is resisting the urge to coerce those whom you can't convince. The problem is, is that we have a lot of people that think, no, 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 I'm convinced, therefore you should be. And if you're not, you will be made to be convinced. So let, let's, let's foster the sort of community where we can work together, but that does require a certain basic set of rules, because if you're going to automatically, if if the moment you don't get your way, your attitude is going to be, well, I'm going to get the government to compel you. I'm sorry. I don't want community with you. I don't want community with you because I can't trust it, but I can't trust it with these people. And that kind of leads to my second category, right? Like if you have a shared mission, if you have shared values, now you get to move into, into capabilities. And this part, I, this is one of the things I think is fun is what are, I think, capabilities that every human being should have. And one of the things that um, Tina and I talk about is obviously, I believe as a man, my job is to protect and provide. That's one of the things that I should do as a husband, as a father, as a a man. By the same token, I I was a soldier. So I was gone a lot. And Tina had to be in the role of protecting because I wasn't there. And so one of the things we did early on with our kids, and this is something I, I highly recommend to anybody that's even remotely interested to do it responsibly, but teach teach everyone in your family should know how to shoot. Um, and, and I think that's, uh, and, and in some ways, um, that's, that's really important. I think for your wife and for your daughters, because in a physical contest, they're probably not going to be able to overpower a, a man that is just hell bent on hurting them. But as Tina likes to say, the second amendment's the great equalizer, right? What, what was the, you know, God made men, um, God made men large and small, Sam Colt equalized them all.
2: <laughs> right, right. I feel I feel like as long as I'm armed, I feel like I can go just about anywhere and feel relatively safe. I mean, even if I'm walking down a dark alley at night, if I'm armed, I feel like I can pretty much take whoever might jump out, um, even if it's a group of people. Well, and and, it's it- And so I feel like... Um, there's all these women that talk about how scared for their safety they are and how you know oh college is all full of rape culture and yet they still don't want to allow guns on campus for women mm-hmm. um and and it is it is something to me where it's like we can provide for our own security i mean obviously there's there is a point where you can be overpowered if somebody's got better firepower than you but uh, if you know how to use your, your firearm, I mean, surprise is kind of your best, um, weapon is that a lot of times they won't expect that from a woman, especially if you're really feminine. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I mean, I just, I feel like the element of surprise is great. Also, um, oh, who's the guy that does warrior pro society? John Lovell. Okay. John Lovell. Um, I hear a lot of women talk about, oh, I, I, I might carry a knife. Like maybe I could carry a knife. And first of all, I think that's just such an inferior weapon. You shouldn't, you shouldn't carry. I mean, like, I guess if that's all you can carry, but usually places where you can't carry a gun, you also can't carry a knife. So you, it's like, whatever. Well, unless but, you're a bad guy. <laughs> um, right, right. But, but John Lovell said, said something really interesting, um, at the last homesteaders convention when a woman asked about her carrying a knife. Well,
0: she asked, she asked specifically about, she goes, what, what sort of physical combat would you recommend I take in order to. to
2: And she, she was asking about using a knife and, um, and he said, well, I mean, knives are meant to be felt, not seen. (laughs) And so basically don't ever brandish a knife because that's a really good way to have it taken away from you, especially if the person can overpower you. But if you're being attacked and you can get to your knife and they don't know you have it, then it's very useful. But uh, if they know you have it, they're going to take it from you. Um, with a gun, you can uh, deal with your situation from many yards away. And they don't even have to make physical contact with you. With a knife, they have to make physical contact with you before you can actually use it. So uh, anyway, all that to say, women, arm yourselves.
0: Well, and, and here's the other thing that's that, like is super fun about this as a, as a father. Um, so all of my kids learned how to shoot relatively young. And, and the reason why is we've, we've had all these debates before in and, you know, politics and whatnot about, okay, fine. You can have your guns, but you got to have them locked up. Okay. You can have them, your guns, but you got to have them locked up in the ammo, locked up in a separate compartment. It's like, basically, they're just trying to come up with ways where it, you, it's unusable. And, and I always said, well, wait a second. What, what's really important here is that if you're going to have a firearm for, you know, safety, it has to be accessible and you can't be fumbling around at night trying to open up a safe in order to, you know, load your firearm and, and shoot it. Like, but but what if kids get a hold of it? I said, okay, well, one of the things that you do to prevent that is you be smart about how you do this. And part of it is also making sure that your kids understand you know, with, with the firearm, I, I think it's amazing that, you know, again, we, we have all these chemicals underneath the sink that your kids have ready access to half the time. Um, that when they're really little, they can ingest. It's like we're not, we're not suggesting you should get rid of all chemicals or lock them up somewhere. So with firearms, what we did when our kids were little, I think our kids started shooting when they were five, might have been four, actually. Um, and what we did is we, we taught them proper handling, care, and respect for a firearm. Now, my youngest daughter, Loves to tell this story because we we were running a a campaign, and we're we're all sitting there, and most of us have like shot before, but we're all sitting there, and one person looks over, uh, one one uh a uh, woman that was working for us, and she goes, I've never shot before, and like the whole campaign room went like. Roo! Like, what do you mean you've never shot what? a gun before? Like, I've never shot a gun before. I'm like, uh, well, that's going well, to we're going to
2: remedy, remedy that right we're now.
0: We're going to have to change that. So we, we did, we, we had a barbecue over at the house and we've got a little range set up. And I mean, we didn't make her shoot. She wanted to, she just never shot yeah. before. And I said, all right, well, you're going to get the full spectrum. I mean, you're going to get, you know, revolvers. You're going to get some automatics. You're going to get shotguns. You're going to get ARs. Like you're, you're going to get to shoot everything by the time you leave. And my, my youngest daughter, who I think was 12 at the time. She comes out. And she's got super long hair, so she's got her pigtails, and you know she comes it was, out. It was
1: three years ago.
0: Yeah, so she was twelve, and um, and all the all the guys are down there shooting, right? So we've got she just know,
2: had a ponytail. They're
0: shooting like the 357 magnums. Yeah. They're shooting my 45s, they They're shooting all that stuff, and then um, Allie walks up and she goes, "Do you, do you want to do do you want to do a shooting uh contest with me?" And the guys like, well, "Sure, sure, yeah, we can do that." She goes, "Okay." ting ting Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's like, a crack shot.
2: And the guys,
0: the only one that tied her was Hamilton.
2: Yeah, but the other guys totally lost <laughs> her. And <laughs> can <laughs> I also share a, a hilarious little tidbit from that is that everybody was shooting Nick's um, AR uh, uh, with, and it doesn't have. Um, we had iron. Well, did, I had one with iron sights. He had sights. iron sights on it. So no scope. And we were shooting Tannerite. And um, and everybody took a crack at it, one shot, and I was the first one to actually hit it. She well, uh, you gotta like, understand that she on didn't my just, first shot,
0: she didn't just she didn't just hit it. She she gets up there, perfect stance with the AR, right, and she just and stay, I think you were standing.
2: I, yeah, we were standing. She was
0: standing, She wasn't like she wasn't in the prone position. Not prone. Supported, I just loved beating not,
2: out all these boys.
0: Straight up, offhand, standing up. She shoots it. Tannerite explodes, and while it's still in the air, she looks back and smiles at everyone. And I'm like, "All right, y'all are gonna have to leave."
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're, come you're on all gonna now. have to leave.
0: You right now.
2: <laughs> okay, I, was, I have one more thing to share, and that is that Daniel Clark sent a mug to your. Uh, to the PO box oh really yeah and it arrived and Gina just sent me a picture of it um, she's gonna bring it to the next meeting okay and it says father biological male that provides and protects for his children by being a threat
0: oh I like it yeah I like it and,
2: and the it's got the American flag on it oh well very done. cool thank you Daniel.
0: Well done. We
1: we don't quite have a like a, a public address to be sending mugs. He found the.
0: He like found, found But yeah,
1: we, we do want to set one up at some point.
0: No, I do. I also think former wokey whites. Thank you very much for the donation. She goes why teach your kids to shoot when you can tar and feather? Well, because it puts you in a good position when you're you know getting your tar and feather ready. <laughs> um, All right, I, I got a I got a very important question for you, yeah. Nick. Should
1: you carry with a round in the chamber.
0: Ooh, that that is a great question. So here's what I'm going to tell everybody: um, you need to you need to train and um, or or you need to carry in capacity with your comfort level and your ability to operate. Right. That's that's what you need to do because you don't want to do something stupid. But I will say this: th- the proper way to carry is with a round in the chamber, because if if you're in a situation where you actually have to draw. And, and fire. Chances are that's not because someone is a hundred yards away, slowly moving to you know toward you, like the security guard in Austin Powers, right? Like no, like it's right there. You need to operate right away. So you need to be you you really should get yourself to a position where you can carry with a round in the chamber. Yeah. So that when you're when you're operating, you should also be focused on not just this. Is one of the biggest mistakes people make is they will they will go to the range. They'll get their concealed carry. They'll go to the range. They'll learn how to shoot, but they never learn how to properly draw. Yep and, and, and shoot in what you might call a tactical situation. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I'm running my kids through, right? You know, we're, we're actually, I'm actually, I'm way overdue. I'm supposed to run them through another thing on that, but we, we talk about how to draw um, where, where the, the proper points are. It's typically like one, two, three, four, and, and you're, you're doing all that and you're training that. So if someone's coming after you and you've got to actually pull your concealed carry and you can only get it to right here, you should be able to confident, confidently operate that in such a way but, to be able to defend because yourself.
1: the goal is you, you never want to brandish the firearm unless you know you're going to have to use it. Yes.
0: No, if you're, if you're walking around brandishing your firearm, now, now there, there are some States that have open carry and that's, that's one thing, but I'm talking about people that are like you, 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 you have pulled your firearm and you are pointing it at someone yep. right now. Um, you know, again, could there, could there be situations where that might be appropriate? Sure. There, there's scenarios that could be appropriate, but, um, if you actually find yourself in a scenario where you have to not only pull, but now you've got to rack around, you're done. Yeah. And, and that's not something you're used to doing. I mean, please understand something. One of the things that makes the United States military so effective is the amount of rounds we put down range. When I, when I was in special forces and we would go to a range, Twelve guys would go through like thousands of rounds of ammunition, and a lot of that was not just sitting there. It's not like we were firing full auto downrange all the time. We we barely ever fired full auto unless we were bringing out like the M two M two forty Bravos or the M two four nine saws or or things like that. No, most of that was single shots with our M4s, single shots with our pistols, and constantly practicing scenarios where you've got to transition. You ran out of rounds, you had a malfunction, you couldn't correct it, you got to transition to your your pistol. So if you're going to practice concealed carry, you need to practice with the holster you plan to carry with, with the clothes that you typically wear and what the movements are and, and how you do that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what you need to get good with. If you want to be effective at carrying, but I, but I would say this again, going with this whole capabilities, what, what should everybody learn how to do? I I think for men learning a little bit about physically being able to physically defend yourself, Hamilton and I are are going through uh, (laughs) we're having a great time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. We're doing MMA training right now. And I want to tell you doing MMA at 43, it hurts, man. It hurts. But it, it is it is a great feeling to get out there and, and kind of roll again and everything else. But So those are all good things. What are some other capabilities? This gotta... is a
3: great message. Oh, okay. John Here we Griffin. go. The left basically owns marriage. With no fault divorce, women are incentivized to leave, and they need no reason. If she raises her hand to quit, she'll be paid to leave. Current divorce rates show this. You know, I was having a conversation in circle with somebody last night. Yeah. Um. And... Um, she mentioned something that I, I've, I've heard people increasingly bring up that like, you know, we're, we're, we're facing like a, a dating market that is like in shambles right now. She said that, um, she went on a date with a guy thinking that he wanted a serious relationship. And like the first thing that he says is, would you be interested in an open relationship? Yeah. And she, and she like walked out of the coffee Bye. shop at that point. Yeah, And then she brought up that like, you know, we're trying to find people and a market where the average person is like 10 times worse than our grandparents were. And I've heard many people bring this up before. I, I I think that this kind of plays into the whole cultural insanity thing, right? Like, like clown world is not, is not limited to just, you know, the banking system, yeah. right? It's, it, 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 it invades everything in society. And the way that you get around it, like I said earlier, is it's not just creating rival institutions. Yeah. It's also, it, it, ultimately, it's, it's about mocking and ridiculing and, and making it uncool to be associated with that type of stuff. Yeah. The, the whole phrase that like conservatism is the new counterculture. No, conservatism is not the new counterculture. Just not being a clown is the new counterculture. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I, like, yeah. I, I mean, because think about it, like what exactly have conservatives conserved? Over the last like 30, 40, 50 years, like nothing. It's part of the reason that I don't like identifying as a conservative because I'm not interested in preserving the status quo that we have. I want to overthrow the status quo that we have.
0: Well, let's get to, let's, I will say this, like to the point where the legal system is largely set up now in, in order to, you could say almost, um, you put women in a position to where if they leave the, the government's going to ensure that they essentially, you know, get alimony, they get the kids, they they whatnot. It, it ends up being, you could argue that it ends up being a major disincentive point for marriage if you're a man. So this is the question I have to ask, though: is is what gives your marriage meaning? One one of the things I, one of the issues I kind of have with this idea that the state is what gives the marriage meaning, right? It's that state certificate. Um, I, I will say right now that what gives what gives my marriage meaning, and I and I think Tina would agree with this. Is we, we had a shared faith. So like all those principles that we talked about before on like what makes for a good community that you can trust, um, we had those. Like we both believed in objective truth, objective morality, liberty plus responsibility, dedicated to logical discourse. We all had a firm commitment to that. And that was Our very first
2: conversation was evidence of that. Our very first conversation. And they actually (laughs) took a picture of it. It wound up in the yearbook, our ninth grade year. And there was, we were both sitting by the lake because it was the senior, like kicking off the school year trip. And so we all went to the lake and, um, and they took a picture of us sitting there and, and Nick's doing this <laughs> and I'm doing this. Yeah. And we were arguing over, over which of us was more conservative at the time. And, um, we're still kind of hashing that one out. What,
0: actually. <laughs> well, no, what it really comes down to though, is that marriage has become, I, I think marriage has begun, has become more dangerous for men in the sense that if you're relying on the legal system to provide the incentive, or if you're relying on a, a culture which is constantly creating, I would say, obstacles to what makes for a healthy marriage, if you're relying on those things to give it meaning or to give it purpose, you are setting yourself up for failure. Now, that's not to say that people can't get married under one, certain circumstances and then one of their partners changes or does something different. Obviously, that can happen. But all, all I can tell you is that in 24 years of marriage, and we got married at 19 and 20, right? the first 10 years I, I was in the military, like the first, I, I want to say seven years of that was combat, five years of that was special forces. Go look at the divorce rate in special forces. Because if I wasn't in Iraq, well, then I was in Korea or I was in Thailand or I was in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. or I, I mean, we were constantly go- – and then when I'd come home, then what would happen? I'd have to go to the field for a two-week training exercise. Or he had
2: to go to some kind of a school. Or- and I was never opposed – usually I was not opposed to him going to schools because it made ah. him It made him a lot more likely to come home. All right, good, good, Griffin. Getting I'm- married
3: before 2000 was like catching the last <laughs> helicopter out of Vietnam. <laughs> Gun Griffin. Oh my gosh. You're so right. That's, you know what's, you know what's that's funny? A Wait, I've I got married Nick in May before. of 1999. <laughs> I, 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 that was the, by the way, that was the uh, fun fact. This is going to be hilarious. That was the first month that SpongeBob premiered. Um. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like, uh, no. Okay. Like, this is something that I've, I've been kind of upset about because um, last December, I think it was last December. It might have been last November, but I'm pretty sure it was last December. I got into an argument with Nick right after we had finished recording an episode, and I, 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 I like, we were talking about like men and women and dating and relationships and marriage, yeah. and and like just the complete collapse of the dating market. And I, I remember that like we had this discussion, this first episode of what ended up becoming a trilogy about yeah. dating and relationships. And we did not anticipate that it was going to become a trilogy at the time. It was just a one-off episode, but it, from my standpoint, went so poorly. The episode itself went great, but the discussion and just the disconnect between Nick and I was so vast that we needed to do some follow-up, uh, follow-up episodes. And I'm actually really glad that we did. But I remember right after we finished that first episode, I got into a like an argument, a very intense argument with Nick. Not hostile, but definitely an argument with Nick. And I was like, and I'm sick and tired of you going out there and saying all these things about men. Because I, I had just been fed up with hearing people just blaming men for everything. Not that I think that Nick was blaming men for everything. But the, the point is, is that like there is this disconnect that Nick realizes it between him and I that we're in different generations and he got married when he was 19 that is unthinkable for somebody in my generation or a zoomer today like on un- utterly unthinkable
0: to be married well, okay, at- before but, okay, 21 can I say this though my daughter just got engaged she's 20
3: I- I- Nick that is the exception I it you not think it, you rule. think you
0: think it was regular in 1999 for 19 and 20 year olds to get married? That's my whole point. It's it, the exception, not the rule. No, okay, but the point I'm making is that, like, I can I just say this right off the bat so there's no confusion, right? So like, you know, Wilhelm and all don't need to get mad at me. I am totally acknowledging that the dating and marriage market is is, is so different from the late 90s as to be almost indistinguishable. Like I, I am willing to, I am willing to com- totally concede that point. When I'm the comment I'm making about marriage, though, is that r- regardless of how difficult it is to find somebody with those shared values, searching, searching for that, right, and then also building and equipping yourself toward that purpose, and then finding someone and marrying them, that is what, that is what divorce proofs your marriage, right? No fault divorce is a problem, but here's my question. Are, are you, one of the things I don't like about the whole no fault divorce or how easy it is to divorce is that people no longer take this seriously. It's one of those things where they get into it. It's like, well, we're going to try this and if it doesn't work out, oh well. And then you have other people that think, well, we're going to live together first before we get married as if that's going to help your marriage. And actually the opposite is true. So, So here's what this really comes down to. The principles are still the same. The principles are still the same and the principles work. You can look at no fault divorce and you can say, okay, well, this fostered this attitude of making marriage more frivolous, but our marriage wasn't affected by it at all. So yes, it has had a negative impact on the culture and the way that they view it, like our legal system has, but this is also what I'm talking about, right? One of the problems is, is when we look to politics to tell us what is right and wrong, (laughs) we end up getting very disappointed with what they end up concluding. And and so part of like what, again, part of what we're talking about here is as you look at your communities and as you're looking at someone to, to marry, um, one of the things that I think is so great about, us all saying, all right, Hey, look, how do we start setting up a community with shared values is because that puts you in a position where it's easier to find the people you're looking for. Exactly. That's yeah. why I brought yeah. it up. I'm, yeah. I'm glad
3: that we're, we're closer together now than we were last December. Not in August. a weird way. But no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> like,
2: like, yeah. Cause it, it really <laughs> stems from having finding somebody that views marriage the same way you view marriage and they're committed the same way you're committed. They believe in the same things you believe in. And, um, most of these women on, you know, friggin' TikTok, you know, Instagram, whatever. Yeah. Um, most of them are not who you're looking for. They may be really, really beautiful, but um, they are very, very lacking in the character department, oftentimes. And so you've got to find somebody who who fits the parameters of what you need or what you desire um, on the mental level. On they're also on the too character stupid. Level,
3: <laughs> they're also too stupid for somebody like me to be interested in. I need somebody that I, that can actually like carry a conversation. And I'm sorry, but the TikTok teens out there can't carry well, a can conversation. I, you're right.
2: You're right. The, many of them are morons. But but the women you're looking for are not on there. No. Yeah. And, yeah that, that's totally. So if you totally. look, if you look at, at social media. And you're just gauging all females based on what you're seeing on social media. You're missing a huge swath of women that don't even go on there, that that is not their thing. Yeah. Um, and when they are on social media, they're posting their animals or they're posting the projects they're working on. There are all these women that post things all about projects they're working on and and things they're growing and things like that. Those are the women you want. You don't want the women that are like showing you how plump they've gotten their lips after the last lip <laughs> I, injection. I,
1: I think the challenge that, that that we have is that the pool has become smaller. And a lot of the people I know, a lot of my friends will tell me, y- your standards are too high. You need to let go of some of these standards. And my response to that is the pool may be small. I know that. The challenge is making sure I am active in that pool. Yep. And I think the challenge that people my age have and younger is finding out where that pool is could be at church, but I think that oftentimes, like, I'm just gonna have to start using dating apps. I th- no,
3: which
0: no
2: us we talked to back to
3: the. We've guys, on. we
0: already got the chat blowing us up for going off on a tangent every okay. five seconds. So let's let's okay, we're on capabilities. There's stuff that we should all learn how to do as men and women. Here's the other part: is is the whole specialization point, right? We've talked about this before, where it's it's this whole idea of you know, how do you, how do you like homestead or how do you grow your own food or how do you, and and I think a lot of that resilience is good and important, but I think we should also understand that there's nothing wrong with the idea of specialization. In fact, that's how you get good robust economies is you don't spend all your time trying to become mediocre at things that you're poor at. You spend your time becoming excellent at the things that you naturally excel at. And so when, when we talk about developing capabilities, and this goes to your point, when you talk about the dating world, when you talk about finding of shared values, when you meet that woman, when you meet that woman that you, you really love, when you meet that man that you really love asking the question of what capabilities did I develop? You know, what, what, what sort of position did I put myself in? So when I do meet that person, I'm attractive to them. That that's a, if you haven't found the person yet, well then I think you you go forward looking from a, a hopeful component, right? But in the meantime, you're developing those capabilities, and then also as a husband, as a wife, one of the things that I've found really interesting within our marriage is um, there are things that when we first got married, I never I never thought I would be all that interested in, like cooking. Um, I became more interested at later on in marriage because what what ends up happening is not only do you specialize in the things that you're good at, but over time you you actually start what you might call cross-training. And I don't mean cross-training from like a, a physical fitness standpoint. I mean, cross-training is my Tina's is an incredible cook. And so it was an opportunity for me to kind of learn how to do certain things. And, and one of the things that we did that was, I I thought was kind of fun was I'm not going to try to cook the same things that Tina cooks, but there was certain things that I really liked that she didn't really like cooking as much. And so I developed that skill set. And so the whole point of the capability side is focus on things that you should learn how to do like certain discipline oriented things. That's like
2: we can get really good at something and then cross train on other things. Right. Um, so like typically I'm the one that cooks in the house. I'm a, I'm actually a, Fairly decent cook. I wasn't always. I didn't start incredible. off incredible. I didn't start off a great cook, but I can, I can say I can
0: either confirm nor deny whether or not that statement was true.
2: Okay. <laughs> I didn't start off fantastic, but I got really good. Yeah. And, um, and so there's most dishes I can go ahead and I, I can just make. And I'm pretty darn good at baking. And I'm, I am the one that grills in the house. Yeah. But, um, Nick, He has cross-trained so that basically when I'm not available or when I'm just need a break from cooking, because I don't always love to have to cook every single stinking night. um, He knows how to make really good spaghetti. He makes amazing chicken nuggies and they're (laughs) delicious. And everybody comes from far and wide to (laughs) eat the chicken nuggets. So Nick has to make like 10 pounds of chicken nuggets whenever he does it. Um, And Anyway, he's really good at that. He makes the Roast roasted lamb. lamb and he makes this flatbread that's amazing. So anyway, I'm just saying we have cross-trained and there was a period of time where I was like I don't think this man's ever going to learn to cook. Like <laughs> if if it was if it was Mother's Day, I was getting crunchy eggshell eggs. <laughs> um and I, I was pretending Dude, it was wonderful. I,
0: when you're cracking the eggs and you put them in the pot, sometimes eggshells get in there, all right? That's, and you got to get them out. I, I'm better about that now. No, okay. he's
3: actually terrible at this. He leaves eggshells in the
0: sink all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Not in the sink. I'm talking about the oh, pan. Oh, yes. I'm talking you know. about the pan I'm when you about. make the <laughs> eggs. I'm talking about two different See, things. This here. is what happens when Christian doesn't pay attention and then opines. See,
3: this is the problem with the clown world that we live in. Used to be that people would actually clean up the kitchen when They made a mess, but now there's no social responsibility for
0: anything. So,
2: like, that's because Nick has a magic sink at home. Keep
0: keep in mind, Christian's wearing jammies right now. So,
2: you have to go there. Oh,
0: you called out, you called out me not, you called out me not. There will come a day when all
3: of our bonds are broken, (laughs) and that day is today. (laughs) Um, so, like, the heart of this episode. I know that we've gone on so many <laughs> tangents, right, and so many stories. I was joking with Hamilton, actually, in, in our chat about this episode. I'm like, we need to rename this episode to Storytime with Nick, Tina, Christian, and Hamilton. <laughs> but the, the heart of this episode is supposed to be an in, in antidote to cultural insanity. And I, what we tried to get across in the first, I think, 30 minutes of this episode, 45 minutes of this episode is, look, if you've listened to any of our past episodes, or even if you just... <laughs> just open the internet. You know that the world that we're living in is doesn't work. It's it, it's like we had 5,000 years of human history where things relatively worked the same way, even though technology had changed over time. And things worked pretty well. Society worked fairly well. It was terrible in terms of material conditions, but that improved over time with increasing technology. But as as technology advanced... We decided five minutes ago to discard the last five thousand years of human history, and we were told, "Oh, this would be a great a, a great experiment." <laughs> yeah. And now we're seeing the results of it, where people are literally denying biological reality. Like, like it, it, it is. It is a clown world and people know that it is. And the problem that we have is people also feel kind of lost because it's not just a clown world. In some ways, it's like a universal solvent. It's dissolved all of the social bonds that have held society together for centuries. And the question is, how do you fix that? I don't think, and none of us here, I actually think that we're going to vote our way out of this problem. I also don't think that we're going to, oh, here's a solution. Let's all just become shareholders of Bank of America and we'll stop them for pushing (laughs) DEI and ESG. No, that's not going to work either. The way that we're going to solve this problem is A, making it uncool to be associated with the Leviathan or the cathedral and B, constructing our own counter institutions that can serve as a stopgap for the left's insanity, where we can actually bring like-minded people together. And the way that you do that is by basically finding where you fit into this counterculture, into these counterinstitutions, and plugging yourself into there. So here's an example. Nick is really into homesteading. But I'm not at all, which is funny because I actually have a longer history of arguably homesteading yeah. than Nick, but he's done a way better job at it. My parents have been arguably homesteading for like 12 years. They they have a bunch of chickens. They grow their own vegetables. Um, they have an acre and a half of land. My parents reminded <laughs> me you. a few episodes ago when I said they had an acre. They, they were like, Christian, you need to tell the audience you have an acre. We have an acre, acre and a half. But the point is, is that like, as Hamilton knows, I... I'm not a a yard person. I'm not an outdoors person. (laughs) Oh, I'm I'm well aware. (laughs) But Nick is. And so, the way that you fix this problem is, figure out what you're interested in. Yeah. And work with like-minded people for those things. So, Nick's going to this homesteader convention in October. Yep. That's in Virginia. I couldn't care less about it, but I do support it insofar as the people that are associated with that movement, they're like-minded people. They they agree with me philosophically, probably 90 plus percent of the time, even though I'm not necessarily into that topic. What I am into is I'm very deep into the academic type stuff. And yeah. I, just as Nick gets upset about how the left has taken over all these institutions and fields that he's really interested in, I'm very upset about the fact that the left has conquered academia. And so- One of the things that I want to do is find people that share the same values as me that also shares a a similar love for the same topics as I do, that that shares a similar love for history and philosophy and theology and and all of these rigorous academic pursuits that have been destroyed by the left after it took over the university system. That's where the capability stuff comes from. I'm not going to try to be the best homesteader I can be. Yeah. I'm going to try to be the best philosopher and academic and historian that I can be because I know that
0: I'm <sighs> relatively
3: sure. good at those things.
0: Well, and, no, I think that's I think that's really important because sometimes again, and, and this is this moves on to the the kind of the part four here and that's community and what does that mean? Because one of the one of the accusations that is thrown at conservatives or the homestead community or stuff like that is this idea that you guys are also focused on individual liberty, private property rights rugged individualism that you don't work together well. And, and I, and I actually reject that as a notion. We, we don't, we don't like being told what to do. We don't like authoritarianism, but that doesn't mean we don't like to cooperate. The question is, is how do we facilitate that cooperation? Right? So when we talk about, all right, Let's assume that the first two criteria have been met, right? You found people that agree with you, right? There's objective truth, there's objective morality. We believe in personal responsibility. and then the the second level is is and we've all we've all looked at ways to develop our own capabilities because we assume personal responsibility for providing for ourselves our families and being able to help people like within our extended family or our community or our church or whatever else it might be. The next question is is how do you how do you roll that into a more comprehensive community than what we currently have? Because you know there there was um, there's this one interested or there's one interesting statement that happened at the Democratic National Convention once where they said the government is the only thing we all belong to. And it was like, "Whoa, okay, there's a couple of different ways you can look at, it, right? The generous part of that is that our, our identity with respect to our nationality or whatnot is the one thing that we all belong to and participate in or, or can through voting and things like that. The other part is the more nefarious of, yeah, we're all, this is, this is the mechanism we use to make decisions for the larger community. It's like, whoa, there's a lot of decisions you shouldn't be making for us. So, and and not to mention the fact that the church, let's just be honest here, the church for a long time by giving up more of its responsibilities to the government, when it comes to taking care of people in need, when it comes to education, when it comes to running hospitals, when it comes to, you know, providing assistance to people in need, the church decided, ah, we're going to let the government handle that. Oh, well, gosh, what a shocker. The government screwed it up and we're not better off for it. So the, the idea is, is how do we form that community among like-minded people? And, and here's, Here's where I want to talk a little bit about what I call the ODA model, all right? And I'm going to offer this up to the audience as something to consider because we are, again, conservatives by our very nature believe, I think, in a combination of rugged individualism but also a sense of community. Um, we, We want to cooperate. We don't want to be coerced. And we're not comfortable with things that start to look like coercion. And so we kind of rebel against it, especially in a culture right now where we feel like we're constantly being told, do this or else. And so we are a little bit more introspective about joining memberships for something and having to like regularly participate in in meetings and things like that. We We don't want that. All right. So what does our community look like? What what is a bunch of, you know, people that are rugged individuals, maybe a lot of people that, you know, think they should be in charge or, or smart and competent, don't want to be told to do. How do we work together better? Right? So this is what I mean by the ODA model.
2: Can can we, before we get to that, yeah. Um there's a super chat. I know oh. this might be a bit off topic. Oh, sorry, okay. Um you you can go ahead.
0: Oh, it's okay. Professor Keane. Asked, thank you very much for the donation. I know this might be a bit off topic, but will you get any or all the six candidates who are running against Tim Kane in studio with you or our beloved Governor Yunkin in studio soon? So Professor Keene, we, we've actually talked about this um, before on, on what do we want this podcast to kind of represent and what do we want it to do? And one of the things that we decided, um, kind of as things developed and we were talking to people within our, our community chat is we didn't want it to be a platform for political candidates to talk about their campaigns. So it, it's one thing to talk about uh, somebody that maybe happens to be running for office that wants to talk about something they believe or a policy position that they, they really admire, but we don't want it to just be an extended campaign ad for a particular candidate. And so one of the things that we're going to try to really focus on is when it becomes appropriate to have someone on that might be in elected office, that might be running for elected office, we're going to really focus it around like, okay, what are you here to talk about? And it can't, it, it's not the campaign. You you can talk about, you know, a policy position that you're really passionate about. Maybe you want to talk about education, or maybe you want to talk about the Second Amendment. Um, or maybe you wanna talk about, you know, constitutionalism and, and getting back to federalism and whatnot. That's all fine. But not a not an extension of a campaign commercial.
2: Or somebody who's already in office that one we would no?
0: You mean like me? There was um, <laughs> th- there was a conversation. I that mean, was Nick,
2: go- this is just an extended campaign ad for you. <laughs> <laughs> there,
3: there's there's been a conversation going on in the chat that I've been having with Tyler um, yeah. Catafrax. Um, the Tyler in the Shen- uh, sorry, the Tyler in Southwest yeah, Virginia, yeah. not the Tyler that works for Ben Klein. Um, and and he he brought up a, an interesting point that like the right has been trying to to you know do these things. You know, construct these counter institutions for a long time, and they failed. And and I I made the argument to him that no, I think that for the longest time the right tried to take back these institutions yes. that the left had ideologically captured. We're never going to take back these ostensibly neutral institutions. It's never going to happen. In fact, Robert Conquest had a law. He had these three laws of politics, and his second law is the most famous one. His second law is any institution not explicitly right wing will sooner or later become yeah. left wing, and all these institutions on paper are supposedly neutral. When you think about media, academia, ho- Hollywood, you know, the the corporate system, the financial system, like ostensibly, they're neutral, but we all know that they've been ideologically captured by the left. You're never gonna take them back. And and more importantly, you're never gonna be able to use them, co-opt yeah. them to destroy the left. That is like saying we're gonna use the ring of Sauron to <laughs> defeat Sauron. <laughs> yeah. First off, you're never gonna have access to the ring permanently. Second off, you're never gonna be able to use the ring to defeat Sauron. You need to cast the ring into the fire. Yeah. And the the so so what I told him was there's actually, here's an example of of some progress, some good, believe it or not, I have some good news to share with people. Yeah. It's, it's not doom and gloom. Oh, wow. Think about one institution the left captured a long time ago before some of the others was the entertainment industry. Yeah. They captured Hollywood and the media long before they captured some of these other industries. And yet I would argue that today, the left's domination over Hollywood in the entertainment industry is, quite frankly, irrelevant to almost half of the country. Mm-hmm. We did a Y minute on this once, actually, that Hollywood is dying. Think about how fewer people watch the Oscars every year. Fewer yeah. people care about what's going on in Hollywood. Fewer people go and watch movies in general. The Sound of Freedom, which was produced by a very conservative... Uh, film studio that's trying to, again, create a counter-institution there, did phenomenal at the box office at the same time that movies are largely bombing more than ever before. Also, think about the the complete collapse that you've seen with the subscriber base for like Disney+. Plus. They lost 11 million subscribers in one quarter. They had their earnings call just like a week or two ago that they announced that. It was a complete disaster. I think that there's evidence there to show that we've gotten to a point now. I remember 10, 20 years ago, to get back to the beginning of this podcast where you said we used to remember things differently 10, 20 years ago, right? I remember like 10, 20 years ago, people on the right actually paid attention to what they were doing in Hollywood, actually watched the movies, yeah. actually consumed the content. They don't anymore. In fact, there's there's whole channels like um, Nerd Erotic and The Critical Drinker. that just constantly j- j- just mock and ridicule what they're doing in Hollywood. Yeah, And it's gotten to a point that the right rightfully so doesn't care what they're doing anymore because they've from their point we're of view we're getting our
2: entertainment elsewhere destroyed
3: those institutions and now we're cre- we're getting
0: our entertainment elsewhere oh it's a, it, like i i barely ever i barely ever watch amazon prime or netflix like cuz it's all garbage even when yeah. we
2: gone back though i mean you're even looking at wow they've been peppering this stuff through here for a long time but we're awake to it now but we need to get back to um, the ODA. ODA, model. A, so, ODA okay, model yeah, because I promise,
0: all right, so all right, nobody distract me. <laughs> 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 all right, so but to answer cataphract's question of like we've tried this before and it never works. All right, let's talk about something that potentially does work. So again, as as I mentioned before, you find people with similar values, they have capabilities. Theoretically, they could work well together. What what's what's the problem? And a lot of people have offered up that like, well, people that are individually minded don't work well toward collective action or whatever it is. The reason why I bring up a special forces ODA operational detachment alpha is because it is comprised of 12 people. Now out of those 12 people, you are expected to be able to help raise up, train advise and ostensibly lead in some capacity, a 500 person indigenous force. These are, that's what green berets do, right? We work by through and with the local population. Now here's, what's interesting about green berets. You walk into a team room and you got 12 guys they pretty much all think they should be in charge right like they're they're all pretty
2: all alpha males
0: they're they're pretty much all alpha males they're they're um they've gone through extensive training um we're we're constantly competing with one another in, in a in a productive way but if you would just look up this in paper if somebody wrote down hey i've got an idea we're going to take 12 guys who are all alpha males put them on a team right and they're going to go they're going to go out and be able to you know, just perform complex operations together and everything is going to go well. A lot of people will look at that and be like, psychologically, I don't see that working. So why does it work? Because it is SF Green Berets, that the, the team model works incredibly well. It is one of the most cost effective and just overall effective mechanisms for projecting power within that realm of counterinsurgency, unconventional warfare, etc. cetera. Why does it work? I would argue it works because the first thing that they do is there's a common mission. When you join special forces, you know what it is you're going there to do, right? You, you, you have that shared uh, sense of this is our mission. This is our purpose. Then what do you do? You go through common training. There's certain skill sets that if you're going to be a Green Beret, they expect you to know how to do. You should be able to land nav. You should be able to carry a rucksack for extended periods of time. You should be able to shoot. You should be able to perform a close quarters battle. You should be able to perform a certain degree of of physical combat, right? These are all things that when we show up to the range together, when we show up to training together, we're competing. Who's faster? Who can carry more weight? Who can shoot better? Who can react better? Who can grapple better? all of those things, right? Create common training and purpose. So you have common training, common, or excuse me, common purpose, common training. The next thing that you do in this part is critical. And it goes into what we just talked about earlier with this, with the whole idea of capabilities, you specialize. So within a special forces team, you will have a weapons Sergeant, junior, senior, a communications Sergeant, junior, senior, um, uh, engineer, uh, a, a medic, right? Those are all junior, senior ranks. Then you have an intelligence um, guy. You have a team sergeant, which is your senior enlisted guy. That's the guy that really has the most experience on the team. You have a warrant officer, which is your executive officer. And then you have a captain. We don't have any lieutenants, right? You have a captain. So it's a, a, a more of a senior officer than you would get in like an infantry unit. So, so the reason why you can have all those alpha males on there working toward a common purpose is because we're constantly challenging each other to be better, but there's also a high level of camaraderie because we know when we go out into the world, when we go out into combat, we can be sent into situations where help is a long way off and you better be able to trust and depend on the people that you're actually working with. We also know that in many cases, depending on what we're doing, we better be as self-sufficient as possible. So while you're the senior weapons guy, right? That means I'm gonna trust you to be one of the best guys out on the range. I'm gonna trust you to, to be able to uh, help with, with um, not only shooting, but also weapons maintenance. I'm gonna also trust you to be uh, somewhat proficient on being able to coordinate training and also training up the indigenous forces. If you're the medic, you may be the only medical care I get. And that's why our medics go through intensive training to be an 18 Delta, to be a special forces medic. If you're the communications guy, Dude, I'm relying on you to be able to communicate. And that might be calling in air support. That might be getting us the hell out of Dodge, right? If you're the engineer and I'm I'm dependent upon you for our explosive stuff, because that's part of what the Charlie does is they handle a lot of the explosives. So you can imagine how in every single given situation, Um, people can be the dominant guy in their field and they can be respected for being the dominant guy within that particular field. But everyone understands that to conduct the sort of operations we do, there is interdependence upon those skill And, and as much as I might go to the range and as much as I might, you know, tease the echo that you're nothing but a, a walking, you know, radio pack, whereas I'm the guy that gets to play with all the guns, I, I will guarantee you right now you get into a bad situation and, and, that, and that echo is, is calling in the, the choppers they are going to get you out of there, that guy in that moment becomes the most important guy on the team, right? If, if you've got someone wounded and you're pulling them out of combat and, and that 18 Delta is sitting there working on them to save their life, to get them home, that guy just became one of the most important guys on the team. And so that mutual respect for the specialization that someone has developed is critical and it gives them a sense of, of purpose and placement on that team and then what it also does is it provides them an ability to not only develop that skill set, but then also share it with others. That's where the cross-training comes in. And so now maybe I'm not the 18 Delta, but maybe I found out that, yeah, I'm, I'm good at running a range, and I'm good at doing the weapons systems, but I, I also I'm, a, I'm pretty good with this radio. I'm pretty good with understanding how wave theory works because when we talk about an 18 Echo, we're not talking about a guy that just picks up a radio. We're talking about a guy that is bouncing things off the stratosphere to talk a continent away. Like, that's the level of, of skill set we're talking about here. That's when they're not blaming everything on sunspots. But anyways, so that's the thing where you, you not only feel this, this sense of uh, belonging, like purpose, but also belonging within the organization. And that's what we need to foster, right, within our own community, is this idea that when, when, I, when I figure out, like, who are my people, I'm not just figuring out what I can consume. I'm also figuring out what I can contribute. And then I, I'm not I'm not going to this community to be a leech off of it. I'm going to this community because I'm going to get value from it, and it's going to get value from me. One one of the things that they will always tell you when you're talking about a church group, like if you really want to develop a church family, you need to serve in it. Because if all you are is a consumer then that's all you are. Mm -hmm. You are are going there and you are getting a benefit and then you are leaving. It is all about you. If you really want a community to be strong, it can't just be all about you. That's a part of it. You're an integral part. And if you really want to grow, you have to serve. So if that's what our community should look like, where we've got strong, competent, specialized people that are looking for ways to interact so that the community as a whole can be better than the sum total of its parts while still respecting that individual liberty, property rights, and everything else, how do we foster that community? And that's where we go into our kind of our final well, fifth point here. You know what's well, crazy? Go ahead, actually, Tina.
2: I was just going to say there are a lot of people that are not alpha males who are absolutely perfect in a field, and they can stay in their lane. There are people who they don't know what kind of – um skill sets that that they have that might be helpful to others and i think if you're in that position um it it's a good time like right now when things aren't bad um i mean things are bad but they're not that bad like you can be you could be training yourself up and and improving yourself in ways and and there are ways to learn different skill sets and i think that the people that don't have um one particular thing that they're really excellent at they could be developing those things now. You can be developing how to become useful in that kind of an environment with other people now. And so it's it's like pick pick some skill sets and and learn how to get good at them. You won't be good right away, but if you keep at it, you can get good at it. Wait,
0: sorry, real quick. Jeff McIntyre <laughs> said, sunspots are real, Nick. And Jake said, I was the combo guy. Like, okay, sunspots, I get it. No, listen, <laughs> that, that's a funny Nick, inside SF, joke, I was but, asking sorry. if you
2: know, like, Give some guidance on if they aren't these alpha males. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they don't have these skill sets, what can be done to obtain them?
0: Okay, so Christian brought up earlier, this is one of the things that we're actually, like, we're we're not so much saying this is the solution right now as much as we're saying here's something that we've all been thinking about. Um, and that we want to further the conversation with our community on, okay, how do we, our online community, how do we develop this locally, regionally, nationally, potentially internationally, et cetera. I love the Homesteaders uh, for America conference. So the the Homesteaders for America conference for me is, is kind of the ideal of what a conference should be. Um, and in fact, the one we have uh, is coming up in October um, in, um, oh shoot, I just forgot that. I, somebody it's in the them. valley, isn't it? No, no, no. It, it's it's up. It's it's. Like I Winchester? say northern Virginia, but get it's the around. Info. What's that? Yeah, we'll we'll get the info. But Homesteaders of America conferences is coming up in October. Here's how they run their conferences, because I've I've been to conferences before, and I have to tell you, one of the most frustrating things is showing up to a conference. Where basically what you're doing is you're sitting in a series of of hotel conference rooms and breakout rooms, and you're drinking coffee and you're just listening to people. Talk, 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 right? That, that's it. All right. Um, yeah, go to, we, we've got it up here. It's Warren County Fairgrounds over at Front Royal. Thank you. Um, and it's October 13th and 14th this year. Here's what I love about what they do. They have main stage speakers because obviously that's one of the things that you're, you're doing. You want to show up and you want to listen to people speak. They give a ton of time for questions. I absolutely love it. And then what they also do is they have all these breakout sections. They have all these other tents and things like that that you can go to where if you want to learn how to process chickens, or if you want to learn how to, you know, uh, raise honeybees, or if you want to learn how to, you any, you name it, they've got these broke out sec- breakout sections where you're learning real capabilities. You're watching the thing be done. And then on top of that, you're actually connecting with the people either through the homesteaders of america like website um or or just through meeting people there because there's like a ton of booths where where you're not only fine you're not only running to people that are like our big names in the homesteading uh, community like Joel Salatin who lives in in the valley in here in Virginia or uh, like Jess from Roots and Refuge or Justin Rhodes Um, you know, and and Abundance Plus and all all these different groups that you can meet. You're getting to meet these people. You're getting to talk to them. You're getting to answer questions. You're also learning about what sort of resources they have available. It could be through social media. It could be through like a, a paid site. But then you're also finding the people that you already know have some degree of shared values and some degree of capability and you're looking where they are locally. And what I think that helps foster is that instead of going to a conference and, and maybe it's well run, you go to the conference, you get kind of on this conference high of, oh yeah, I learned all this stuff and oh I met these people and isn't that great. And then you leave and you never talk to them again and you you don't really follow up because you get kind of, you know, busy with like regular life. They have a mechanism where you're getting a network, you're getting to learn, you're getting, you know, maybe some degree of hands-on or or you're learning about capabilities. And then you're you're offered this mechanism to be able to follow up afterwards. I think we need something similar to that that would not only feature like that's homesteading specifically, but I think it would feature people that you know are coming with shared values. That have capabilities that have skill sets, and instead of spending the whole day in a room sitting down in a suit listening to people talk, you're actually going to different things where you're learning very specific skill sets. You're getting hands-on, um, you're getting hands-on opportunities to develop capabilities to share to network, and then the follow-on is that you do have like the online component like we have our, our community chat here where we we share stories, we talk about things we talk about we have our 90 day improvement thing where we're all sharing what are we doing over the next 90 days to improve ourselves spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, physically. That's the sort of thing like I see it as you go to the conference, you meet people, you network, you get plugged in, but then you also have the online community and the whole purpose is not to be controlled by some larger central you know organization that might provide a, a template and a platform. Um, but ultimately it's to find out who your people are locally, regionally that you can work with, that you can grow with, that you can foster friendships with. Can can we add to the whole social media thing? Because I feel like
3: that's actually a bit overlooked and it's really important because one thing that I, I, I believe a lot of people on the right or even center right recognize or even center recognizes that social media has in some ways been a terrible curse (laughs) it it is so i mean I, i would argue that social media is heavily responsible not entirely but heavily responsible for destroying so many of the social bonds that have held society together for so long like the dating market is a very good example of that the commodification of the dating market through social media i feel like completely destroyed dating and relationships and marriage not not a hundred percent of the reason why, but a Christian huge can't help chunk but to bring it back why. to like, here's why Hang things suck. <laughs> Hang on, I'm I'm going somewhere with okay.
2: it, Okay, <laughs> get there.
3: Social media, I feel like, largely has been a negative thing in fostering mental illness, societal breakdown, loneliness, this feeling of of personal alienation, just again the disintegration of these social bonds. But there's actually a flip side of it. It's not entirely bad. The internet and social media is not entirely bad. For example you're listening to this podcast right now, or you're watching it on YouTube. Like that's an example of, ultimately YouTube is a social media site. And so while social media, I feel like is responsible in many ways for for fostering the clown world that we live in, there is a positive side of this. You can now find people that share your values, even if they live on the other side of the planet from you. Yeah. And so one thing that that people on the right need to consider is not just complaining about social media destroying the dating market, not just complaining about social media fostering mental illness, not just complaining about the idiots on TikTok, right? Like, use the, 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 use social media itself, not the institutions within it. I'm not saying, you know, throw all your eggs in the basket of YouTube or TikTok. Nick has been banned from TikTok before. But use <laughs> the existence of the internet itself, right use the concept of social media not the institutions not Facebook the brand not TikTok the brand but the concept of social media the concept of the internet itself yeah. to connect with like-minded people and create that community and but don't leave it there this is why like if you live in a very blue state like California New York ultimately my biggest advice to you is get the hell out of move. Dodge and, <laughs> and yeah, you move to Tennessee or Idaho with
2: people across the country that this what you're talking about right now it makes it possible to to get to know people that don't even live near you mm-hmm. they're not around you in fact we've got people in our circle chat from other countries yeah. as well not just the US and so sometimes your community you've got people that are like minded all across the world um and i mean there are some people in other areas that that like wish they could have the amount of freedom we have we enjoy here um I, I wanna like point one thing out is um multiple times I have seen in our chats how people will go, This is the nicest chat I've ever been involved in. Like these people it's, are it's, so courteous. It's
1: really interesting. Like usually on other political, you know, shows the live oh, chat yeah. there's just a lot of spam, there's a lot of hate going around. That has never been the nature of our live chats. And even in our circle community, like we've had hardly any problems with people being rude. We did have We've had hardly any problems <laughs> hardly. With, with people being rude. And I was thinking about this last night, like the nature of our conversations are positive. And I think we are really blessed in that, that people want to have positive conversations.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about this. Cause this is the part where I really, I really want the audience to kind of opine on this because I'd like for people to kind of tell us what, what they think actually makes sense. Um, Actually, let me let me get to this one real quick. Grun Griffin said, uh, "If we're 30 years into the KGB active measures, is there any is there any other nation that went through it and came out victorious? Is there anything to learn from them?" That's a great question. We could probably actually do a, a whole episode on. Um, how the KGB operated with several other countries and how they tried to influence um, Well, we
3: did the Bezmanov episode.
0: Yeah, we did. We did check out gun Griffin. What I tell you as check out our Yuri Bezmanov episode that we did and and let us know if that kind of answers part of the question. But I think you're asking a a broader one on how how did, was there any other countries that pulled out of what, what they were actually trying to do in other places? Yeah. Afghanistan. We, well, okay. uh, Am I wrong? (laughs) Yeah. So it's a good question, but, but let's go. I I want, I want to, I want to ask the audience this. Here's my question. If you had a, like, if there was a, let's say a conference kind of like homesteaders of America, right. Uh, which by the way, I've, I've totally encouraged people to go to this. It's a great conference, but if there was a conference that you could go to, where you knew that the people that were showing up were, were pretty much online with some of the general values that we talked about here and wanted to develop various capabilities. And that could be a wide range of things, right? could be everything from cooking to planting to raising livestock to shooting to how to start a business, right? Like it could be, it could be preserving, all sorts of things.
2: Preserving food.
0: Yeah. Preserving foods, all sorts of things to make you more capable, more resilient, everything else. And what that meant was, is that you showed up Yeah, there was some speakers, but instead of having your schedule heavily controlled, hey, we we all come together. There's a breakfast, there's a speaker, and then people kind of disperse and they go off and they go to the various booths they want to go to. They go to the various uh, things where they go to where they're actually getting hands-on training. Like maybe, again, if you want to learn how to preserve foods – you're actually getting to go through this process and and learn how to do it by someone that is really skilled and that you can trust, knows what they're doing, yeah, and and give you that that information. Various demonstrations,
2: like the the Homesteaders Convention last time we were there, they were doing a demonstration on how to humanely process and and butcher. Um, I think was it chickens. rabbits they were doing
0: chickens and rabbits. Yeah, I think yeah, so. It was really sad.
2: It, <laughs> it is sad, but it but they show you how to do it so that you're inflicting the least amount of yeah. of suffering.
0: But so you have stuff like that. But think think about this too. Maybe you're this. Maybe you're someone where you're like, look, I want to be able to like, I like what you guys are doing with respect to a podcast. I'd like to do something similar, but in a different vein. But again, I share your values. Imagine Hamilton being able to take you through and just giving you like a one stop shop of, hey, these are the kits that I would like. What's your budget? These are the kits I would recommend you getting. This is what I would recommend you starting off with. As you grow, this would be the best way to grow with on a social media platform. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about to where you show up you're, you're, you're networking, you're getting those capabilities, but then when you also show up, you, you also, you're part of that online community. Mm -hmm. And when you leave, it's not like, well, I hope I got all the information I needed because now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all alone and going back. No, you can go on and now you can get the content that you need on that community website where it's like, okay, I want to learn more about hosting a podcast, or I want to learn more about preserving food, or I want to learn more about tactical shooting. And I, and I want to be able to see the videos and I know there's going to be respected subject matter experts, you know, because maybe, maybe we are working with people down the line with like a John level, um, you know, or, or maybe you're someone that, Hey, I want to learn more. I saw sound of freedom and I want to get more involved in that. I want to learn how to do it. Great. We got Victor Marks and he's going to set you up with what you need to do in order to help out in that particular field. Is that the sort of conference?
2: Like if we could get these people. Yeah. <laughs>
0: is that sort of conference people would attend? Is that the sort of online community they would actually want to be a part of? All right. Uh, my Urban Garden asks the question, I am grateful that conservatives are talking about service and building community. Conservatives rarely serve others who are food insecure, or have substance abuse problems. Liberals have a wide population of volunteers. So, okay, my Urban Garden, here's, here's all I would say. I... I, I, I think I understand where you're coming from on this one. Um, I do want to I do want to take some exception with the idea that, that conservatives don't actually help people that are food insecure. Um, one of the things that we learn uh, when we when we look at this statistically when it comes to donating to charity, is that a lot of conservatives actually donate a, a very high percentage of their income. Uh, or excuse me, comparatively so, uh, percentage of their income to trying to help people that are food insecure, but they might not be doing it in the way that certain liberal organizations prefer to do it. And so, a lot of times, it, it's not that people aren't helping; they have different mechanisms or, or plans for helping. But your point's well taken that what what we want as conservatives, and and I think sometimes we're we're inward looking in the sense that my first responsibility is to feed and protect my family, and then. My, my next circle out there might be my extended family or it might be people within my church or it might be people within my community. So I don't think it's the conservatives don't do it. I think that the mechanisms that they tend to use tend to be different than the mechanisms that a lot of people that might be more on the left use for that. But the bottom line is that ultimately, I think the, the problem that I've seen with the way that, um, we'll say the church community, I'll, I'll be critical of a community I, I consider myself a part of, is that when we outsourced um, taking care of the poor or the food insecure or people dealing with mental health or, or dealing with addiction, when we outsourced that to the government, what we found was is that the government is not good I don't believe at creating the sort of programs that are truly beneficial as far as reaching into somebody's life and helping them on the personal level that is usually required to help somebody overcome a difficult economic mental health addiction style scenario. And I'm going to give a I'm going to give a per, personal example from this. Um I I know what it is um uh, when I when I was in the military and um you know we 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 had a point where it, it was hard financially. And, and part of that was because we had another family that we're, we're trying to help support at the time. And I remember having the power turned off in the winter and it was hugely embarrassing for me. Um, I felt like a failure as a husband. I felt like I wasn't doing what I should have been doing to help my wife. Now we qualified. I want to say for the first three years in the military, we qualified for public assistance and we never took it. Uh, because we didn't think it was appropriate. We thought we could manage with what we had. Now, in that moment, it wasn't the government that came in and helped us. It was family. And here was the difference. When family or when friends are the ones that come in and help you, I, I think it reduces this sense of entitlement. And one of the things that is, is, I think, very, very corrosive to a community is when someone believes that they are owed the help of somebody else. I think it's far more beneficial when you know you're not owed that help and somebody does it anyways because they care about you. Whereas a lot of times with the government taking over that responsibility, I think what you end up with is this false sense of, well, I'm owed this because the government should be taking care of me. Well, first of all, the government didn't take care of you. What the government did was take something from somebody else and then give it to you. And then the government gets the credit for doing something, even though it was the taxpayer on the other end of it that was actually the one providing the mechanism for which you received help. And I think when you disconnect people from the help that they receive, from the people that are actually sacrificing to provide it, you don't actually foster community, you diminish it. Um, there is something very, very, not only powerful, but ultimately reciprocal, about receiving help in a time of need from somebody that didn't have to give it to you and then desperately feeling a need to not only repay or to pay it forward to somebody else because you know what it's like to be there. And I think that is far more conducive to fostering the sort of healthy community and assistance that you can never replicate with a, a faceless government bureaucracy. That was a really long response to that. But I just, I I appreciate what you had to say. And I wanted to make sure I gave it the attention I thought, uh, you know, I I think it deserves. All right. Do we have any other questions we haven't got to right here? Um, Um,
2: There are some other questions um, that I thought were pretty good, but I'm going to have to go back and find them because they're in a different spot. So one person asked what an ODA was.
0: Oh, so Special Forces Operational Detachment Alpha. When you hear like SFA team or like the A-team that's, that's special forces. Okay, some,
2: somebody also asked question, how big of a community is viable for what you're talking about? Did you already answer that question?
0: No, I haven't. That's a great question. So this is one of the things that I, I think that again, when you're talking about people that already kind of like are, are really conducive, to this whole idea of like collectivization and things like that's not us. We believe in cooperation, not collectivization. And so here's where I think it, it, it is most effective I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. So on the macro level, so let's say like the international level, You have a website, you have people sharing information, you have like subject matter experts that are being able to contribute and create content that you're able to use. And you're able to also feed into that community as well. That gives a sense of like a a larger community. So maybe one day you hop on the plane and you fly overseas and you actually link up with people that you've known on this online community. I can tell you right now that if I ever get back over to Europe, there's people on our community chat, like I would love to meet in person. I think it would be so fun to go out and, you know, grab a meal together. so that's the macro level, right? Then you have, that's the international. Then you go down to like the national level. That's the part where maybe you're only running into this person, you know, um, physically like once or twice a year, maybe you go to a shared conference together or something like that, or maybe you hit it off and you become really good friends and then you meet up. But again, on that national level, there's still a level of coordination. There's still a level of things where you can receive as a consumer and also contribute as a producer. I think the part where you foster the closest bonds is when you get into the regional and the local level. And, and that's the part where these are people that you're actually kind of living life together with. So like in our church, we have what they call life groups and what's different about the life group as opposed to like the, the general gathering that you experience on a Sunday, right? Is that the Sunday a lot of time is, is a lot of more uh, sometimes it's broader in context. Sometimes it's, it's designed for like a broader audience the life group is where you really kind of dig in and you develop capabilities beyond that kind of that that core thing. You
2: help meet needs for each other. Yeah, you, know? you
0: help meet like I will tell you right now if someone in our life group loses their job they can come to us long before they ever have to come to the government. We were going, we are going to make sure no one in our life group goes hungry. We're going to make sure that no one in our life group loses their house over a medical bill. Like we will pull our resources together to help one another. Yeah.
2: Like one, one person in our life group literally just had a baby. Yeah. And so we, everybody set up the deal where we bring meals over to help kind of ease the, ease the transitions it's the fourth baby so it's there's a lot going on there well and and it's but i think like our our group is our tightest group is what 10 or 12 people yeah um not including family
0: yeah yeah. So I, I think, I think what it is is that I, I don't think you necessarily point to where it's like, Oh, it's gotta be this many people or this is, but it's interesting that in our small group, it's around 12 people and an ODA is 12 people. But, mm-hmm. um, I, I think you,
2: Hey, I, um, and Jesus gathered 12 people. That's so. what
0: we call Jesus. The first attachment commander. Cause he had 12 well, disciples, 12 men. <laughs> yeah. right. But, but here's what I would say. I, I think that you, on a local level, um, you kind of do what, what's comfortable and what kind of naturally works. Um, and and some of that will be more uh, like intimate friendships, right? These are people that you really you confide in, that you you have dinner with regularly, that you hang out with, that if you're going to go to a fair or something like that, they're coming with you. There's other people that maybe are are like one circle out from that, uh, where they have certain capabilities, and it's like you know what? Hey, I want to buy. I want to buy you know, my food or I want to buy honey or I want to buy something like that from someone that I know within this local community, because I know where it's coming from. I know how it was raised. I know how it was grown. I know how it was processed. I know all of that. Right. And that might not be someone that you're, you're having dinner with every other week, but it's still someone that's a, a friend mm-hmm. and that you feel a, a closer sense of connection to like we we fill that with the people we got our goats from, right? right it's it's right. it's not like we go out and have dinner together and stuff like that. But um, like, I wouldn't think it weird at all if they were to call me up and be like, "Hey, Nick, I saw this. I thought you might be interested." Or if I were to call them up and be right. like, "Hey, I, I got someone that's interested. Can I refer them to you?" Right. That's the sort of connection that you make on that you know that second or third tier connections. So I think that's what you do. You figure out what works for you, what works for your community, what works for you know um the level of interaction that you want to have let's not try to force everybody into a one size fits all model let's let's pro- provide a model in a community that does allow people to again the, the one part i will say that i think is absolute you can't just consume you got to consume and you got to contribute there should be transaction and that doesn't mean that like you got to do like your your volunteer hours or something like that. It's more of, no,
2: it's, it's more like you can't just be the drain on everybody all the time. Yeah. Um, you've got to bring something to the table for your, just for your own, um, self-worth really, because, um, what, what was that Nick quote where it says, if you give a man something, he can't repay, you force him to be your enemy. Yeah. People like to feel like everything's not just one sided. And so you've got to be able to provide something, um, just, just so that you don't feel like a deadbeat yeah. and also so that people don't feel like you're constantly sucking resources off of everybody all the time. And, um, and that could be, I mean, they, everybody knows folks that like seem like they bring the drama everywhere they go, <laughs> but they don't do much else.
0: That's you, what you don't they want bring. That. They bring the drama. <laughs>
2: um, and, and if you don't know who brings the drama, you might be the one. Who brings the drama? (laughs) Hey, Hamilton,
3: could you go back to that previous question that you had pulled up? Um, I feel like this is a great question. Actually, first off, um, to the previous question that Nick was answering earlier, I would argue that on a macro scale, your audience is arguably almost half the country. Um, Half the country, relatively speaking, is on the right to varying degrees, Mm -hmm. and... Again, what they what they should be doing is working towards building these these parallel institutions and just ignoring the left. We should be we should be treating all of these institutions the left has controlled the same way that we treat Disney and Hollywood, which is with complete irrelevance mockery when they do stupid things (laughs) and allow them to crash and burn, which actually leads me to this question, which is a great question from Wilhelm. Um, even though it's directed to Nick, I want to give a shot at it, and then and then maybe give it to you, and then you can wrap sure, up. Sure, go if for you it. Want. Go for it. He says, "What are your thoughts on those who want to burn down the government because they believe it can't be saved?" My thought to that is, you don't need to burn down the government. The government is doing a good enough job burning it down itself. Um, <laughs> it, it is. We we talked about this in yeah. uh, um, Tuesday's podcast, the previous podcast, and we've certainly talked about this in many other shows. That like, I I've argued for months now that. The right doesn't need to do anything other than focus on themselves in terms of constructing these new counter institutions, because the left is going to destroy itself. Like the, the trajectory of the federal government is unsustainable from a monetary perspective. Nobody needs to burn down the government. Like I said, the government is doing a good enough job burning itself down. <laughs> yeah. There doesn't need nobody needs to go join the Boogaloo Boys and go <laughs> march on the Capitol, do another January sixth. You don't need to do any of that. Yeah. All you need to do is just wait, because eventually no matter what happens, we're either going to have an inflationary collapse or we're going to have a deflationary collapse. We will have a deleveraging of the system one way or another. And either of those two ways is going to create a power vacuum where all of these things that the left is has control over, that all of them ultimately rely on to some degree, federal patronage or support in order to facilitate. When that Federal support and patronage no longer exists. There will be a power vacuum that will emerge, and then the right can fill that power vacuum. And ideally, it'll be done in a way that there is no chaos, there's no violence, there's no anything like that. The left will disintegrate itself, and then conservatives, through the communities that we want to establish, as well as through the couple of states that we do have control over, can fill the void, and we can restore constitutional government. It'll be, hopefully, states like Tennessee and Idaho and Florida— that, that will be leading the way on this, and that—that's my take on it. There doesn't need to be burning down the government; just let the government burn itself down.
0: Uh, so I, I don't. I, again, I I think that I think that's largely accurate. I, I think one of the biggest problems here. One of the things that allows and 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 I and I know this from my military days. One of the things that allows people to feel um, or or to keep people kind of stagnant or where they're at or, or a sense of helplessness it is for them to just believe that there's nothing that they can do, that, that all of the problems are, are so um, significant and so large and so complex that they're, that they're ultimately powerless against it. And so once you make them feel that the next thing that you do is you shift them over just slightly and be like, Oh, but if you do this, that they just go vote. Now that's your, but that's how you're going to change things. You're going to vote. Can I just say something? <laughs> the, the more, the most, Amazing thing about this country is not the ability to vote for political representation every two, four, six years. The most incredible thing about this country and what it was set up to do was to actually provide a framework where the government wasn't constantly intervening in your life, your decisions, your actions. You got to make those for yourself. The trade-off was you had to assume personal responsibility. And and over time, what the, the political wager was was that, well if we can convince you that you can live the way you want, but somebody else is responsible for your problems and we can absolve you of that responsibility, well then you'll be happier. Well, it turns out that's not true. But the, the first step is stop believing right now. Obviously there are things that the government can do to you right through. They, they have the, the power of using legal aggressive force to carry out their, their, their will. And there's things that institutions can affect you on. But the, the real question is, is how dependent upon, are you upon those institutions? One of the things I, th- I find fascinating within education right now, within higher education, is there's more co- more and more companies that are coming to the conclusion that what higher ed is creating are really good HR activists, not actually skilled entrepreneurs or even skilled laborers. You go to the trade schools for that. And so what, what are you seeing is that, well... <laughs> just because you have a degree doesn't mean you can do anything just because the establishment calls you an expert doesn't mean you actually have anything of note to contribute to, to how reality in the world actually works. And what's, what that's doing is it's opening up a space, not for people to say, I'm going to go in and tear down this, ignore it, ignore it and go do what actually works. And, and I, honestly, I believe they're more terrified of that than they are of you trying to control the institutions because they've already set up the appropriate number of gatekeepers and everything else to make sure, whether it's the bureaucracy, whether it's the admissions board, whether it's whatever else, they have, as long as you treat that institution like it's the only way that you can achieve an end state, well, then clearly they know what their mission is, is control that institution, control the gatekeeping, and now you can't challenge it. So ignore it. Go around it. Right? That's what we're supposed to be as Americans, right? That's the, the thing where it's like we don't wait for a politician to tell us what's within the realm of possibility. We know what's possible because we know what's working and then we go do it. And, and the part where the part where we need to stand up and actually push back and actually take you know action is when they start they start noticing that oh, they're, they're going around the institutions. Well, I guess we better stop them. Okay, well now now you got a different paradigm. If I'm not doing anything morally wrong, if I'm not doing anything corrupt, And now you're deliberately coming in and stopping back and pushing from me. Well, that is an excellent recipe for civil disobedience. Because there are times, and quite frankly, in this history, we have a proud history of civil disobedience. I'm really grateful that in Wisconsin, a local sheriff arrested a federal marshal for trying to return someone to captivity, to slavery. I'm I'm really glad that Rosa Parks refused to sit on the portion of the bus where they told her that she had to sit. And there's going to be other mechanisms where you're going to have an opportunity to say, you know what, I am not doing anything morally wrong. In fact, I'm doing something wonderful and productive and helping people. And if you're going to step in and tell me, well, you're not allowed to feed hungry people because you don't have the right permit, you know what, maybe at some point it's just going to look back and be like, okay, well, we'll see how bad you want to enforce it. We'll see if your desire to use resources to enforce this is stronger than my desire to do what I know needs to be done within my community, provided I'm not hurting anybody. And you know what? I think that's a worthy matchup. I think that's a worthy matchup because that's what's going to show the absolute moral bankruptcy of some of these approaches, the the coercive approach versus the cooperative approach. And I'm, I'm not saying it's not going to cost you something. That's the other big thing I think all of us need to understand. Sometimes standing up for the right thing will cost you something. But if you have a community that you know and you can trust and you can depend on, if you have capabilities, if you've not only been consuming from that community, but you've been pouring into it, gosh dang it, it's a lot more likely to show up for you when you need it. And that's what this should be about. And I think it's a positive thing. I think it's actually a fun thing. It's an exciting thing for me to think about because I love learning new skill sets. And and I'm and I'm certainly at a point too where I also love... I also love being able to, um, you know, feed into other people's lives with whether it, if, if it's some knowledge that I have that they find beneficial, if it's some experience that I have that they find beneficial. I mean... Being able to teach somebody else to accomplish something um, really is incredibly rewarding. Um, not just monetarily, not just fiscally, but it really is rewarding in the sense of purpose that it gives you in that moment where you know that a particular skill set that is valuable is going to live on in somebody else. Um, so that's what I would say. I, I overall, I agree with Christian. I don't, I don't think you need to like actively work to burn it down. I think that there's there's still very, very valuable ways to participate in our political system. Obviously, I believe that. I'm in an elected office. And I I don't believe we should surrender on that. But one of the biggest things that I fight for is your right to live your life the way you want, not the way that somebody in Richmond or D.C. thinks you should. And so my goal is not to come up with new programs to steal from one person and give to another person. Um, My job is always to try to keep the government at bay so that free people can choose for themselves. All right. All right. I think uh, I think going to be a good place to kind of wrap this up. Again, for all the people that I promised that would be a more upbeat episode, I hope that we have delivered on that promise. And here's and if you don't think we have, if you still think that you know what, I could lose. I could use a little bit more laughs, a little bit more excitement. Well, Tuesday, next Tuesday, next Tuesday, I am surrendering the microphone to Queen of the Bees. You, are you going to get the milk? I'm going. I'm going to get. I'm going to get the milk. I'll be right back. Oh, come on. <laughs> Come on. It's like,
2: I am so nervous about this. What if I'm, why would terrible? I go get
0: the milk when her milkshake brings me to the yard?
2: Oh, oh my gosh.
3: <laughs> cut that one. It's from live. The There's no horrible. cutting. No, that needs to be cut from the, that <laughs>
1: is, that has got to be cut live? from the audio version. <laughs> oh no, it's
2: staying wow. in there. No. It's in there. I stand
0: by it. I approve that message. Oh, wow. wow. I'm, um, but listen, no, I, yeah, I am going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm actually having to travel uh, for something that hopefully later I might, I might be able to talk a little bit about. Um, it, it's a project that, um, you know, I've kind of wanted to be a part of for a while and I'm, I'm really, um, really happy to be able to. So I'm not going to be here Tuesday. So Queen of the Bees will be taking over the mic. She'll be taking over the show. And
2: I may or may not be sharing some very hilarious moments that Christian has brought great objection to. And so we'll, I, I still think that it, I'm going to have to share these things and- Christian's just no. going to be so embarrassed, but, uh, there is a super chat here, Christian. Well, let me Here's
0: what, here's what I'm going to, are we going to, are we going to do a wrap up and answer a couple? Okay. So I want to answer this question real quick. Cause I really appreciate the super chat. So Jim Ross said, Christian highlighted organizations, uh, were co-opted to push agendas. Conservatives said, uh, you know, let me do my thing. Once the left said, you must agree. These are not for you. Conservatives said, okay, but I'm not paying for it anymore. They are now failing. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's, well, I'll, I'll let you opine as well. I, I think one of the things that we're both trying to say and we're saying a little bit different is that, again, some of the things that that give these institutions power is the general belief that they have power or that that the only mechanism that can convey that sort of power a credential or diploma or degree or whatever, whatever else it is. And what, what's fascinating is when people finally stand up and say, you know, I just don't recognize it anymore. I, I don't recognize your influence over my life. Now, again, that's a little bit harder with the government, right? But with a lot of these other institutions, it's like the best way you want to you want to fight Netflix, you want to fight Hollywood, don't buy their crap. I Turn mean, it off. go watch of you- Freedom and yeah. unsubscribe from Disney+. The cathedral
3: has power because everybody's going to mass and it's time for a reformation. <laughs>
0: Oh he's wow. gonna he's gonna straight up get his Martin Luther on and like bam right to the door. Or
3: better yet, it's time to start going to the Orthodox churches instead. Like, <laughs> a, a point is is that like whatever you want to call it, right? I, I I brought up earlier in the show that like some people call it the Matrix, some people just call it the system, some people call it the cathedral, some people call it the Leviathan. It's all the same thing, right? People are just coming up with different terms to describe the same thing. Which and that thing is the left's domination of our cultural and political and societal institutions. The reason that they have power, though, is because we give it to them. We grant them that power. Mm -hmm. The minute that we stop fighting against these institutions and instead walk away from them and build our own explicitly conservative right-wing equivalents to them, because we need to be aware of Robert Conquest's second law. They need to be explicit that they're right-wing. They, yeah. they, we can't make these... There is no such thing as as obscure base neutrality. Yeah. Like like there, there isn't. Going back to the first question I answered in this podcast that, oh, so you believe in indoctrinating children? Of course I do. Because if I don't, somebody who believes that chopping their genitals off will make them a woman mm-hmm. will be indoctrinating them instead. The question is, what type of worldview are they going to be given? Are they going to be given one based on facts, logic, beauty, truth, reason? Are they going to be given one that's built around delusions? And so... I, I would submit to you that if you want to destroy the left, the way that you do it is not, it's not staging a military coup. it's not it's not voting harder. Yeah, you can go ahead and vote. The windows of the right? You yeah. can go ahead and vote. Go ahead and get armed in case things get nasty. But like <laughs> it's not to do any of those things and, and think that that, oh, we just need to wait for the boogaloo boys to go march on Washington again. Or we just need to vote Trump back in office and then he's gonna fix everything again. No, neither of those two approaches are going to work at all. The way that you defeat, the way that you tear down the cathedral is you build a new church mm. and, and you you make it explicit. You you don't hang rainbow flags in front of it either you put the cross front and center in in front of it and you tell everybody this is what we stand for and this is what we believe in. The way that you, you defeat the Leviathan is you don't try to take control of the Leviathan, you slay the Leviathan. The way that you defeat Sauron is not with the ring, you cast the ring into the fire. Whatever analogy works for you, the fact is is that we've got to build our own institutions and stop caring about the left when they complain about us or when they put out garbage content. Mock them. That's why I called them losers in previous podcasts. We need to make it cool again to mock these people and, and, to, and to not care about what they think. Who cares what a bunch of mentally ill people think about us? Seriously. So like, that's where I'm at. And If we take that approach and we stop giving the left power, suddenly we're
0: going to wake up and realize they don't actually have control over us. All right. So here's what I'm going to close with. First of all, I want to thank everybody for participating. I want to thank all for all the suggestions that we got in our community chat, I'm really excited to watch later. What uh, queen of the bees will be saying on Tuesday, since I will not be here for it. Um, That will, that will be interesting. I may, I think this is the first time ever this has happened. This is
2: going to be an MTA. No
0: one's ever going to forget. Yeah. There, I I could see this going in directions that um,
2: yeah. 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 Anyways,
0: Anyway, like I've always told people this. I'm like, you guys think I'm, you guys think I'm the. The the crazy one? No, no, no. That's Queen of the Bees, and I mean crazy in a good, loving, beautiful way, honey. <laughs> Creative way. Like that's exactly how I meant that. But listen, I want to thank you all for watching. Also, please consider joining the community chat because we would like to follow up with more ideas about what we're talking about here. What is a conference? Is a conference is being able to share uh, skill sets? Who are the sort of people that you would like to see at something like that? Is that something where you'd love to see a Joel Salatin? Is it something where you'd love to see a a John Lovell or whatever it is? I, I'd love to. We'd love to get your take on on what it should look like because that's, I don't think that's beyond the realm of, of possibility. I think the same thing's true for like an online community because we already have uh, something like that. Uh, David Matthews just brought up John Lovell's uh, Warrior Poet Society. I'm actually going to be uh, sharing the stage or, or sharing the thing with uh, John Lovell at the Homesteaders of America's convention. John, John and I have talked. We're planning on talking some more. I can't reveal uh, any more right now, but let's just say I'm a big fan of John and I think he's someone that has a lot of the shared values that we're talking about along with some other people uh, we might we might get some good collaboration in the future. But think about this conference. Think about this online community. What what should it look like? What what should we do? What could we? How could we create something that we can both and you know get something out of and contribute something into so that we do have the sort of community where we have each other's back, not only in the good times but also when things potentially get bad. Hopefully they never do. But come on. Anyways, once again, thank you very much for watching, and we will see you next episode where Tina, Queen of the Bees. We'll be running everything. And always, please remember to check the link for the promo code NICK to get $30 off and free shipping of some of the best steak, pork, poultry, and seafood you will ever taste delivered directly to your door, courtesy of Good Ranchers. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.